Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Monday morning, July 25th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. The um, freehold, the producer extraordinaire, continues to stir the the emotions with, with the intro. Since I had something to say about the he's actually doing double duty today. Right? That's true. That's why I left him alone. That's true. I could tell he was... um. <laughs> he was absorbed in his work. He was very caught up in um, the double duty, of which he's, he's having to do double duty. Someone's off this yeah. week. Yep. Uh, this is, of course, vacation time of the year. So mm-hmm. one of one of our uh, co-workers is off this week. So so Mike is working on the early morning, even earlier than this shift shift. Good deal. How about Good that? Good deal. Um, I didn't know you could talk yourself into recession, <laughs> but apparently you can. Um, U.S. Secretary of Commerce, um, Gina Romando, uh, basically said yesterday on one of the talking shows, uh, I didn't hear it live, but I watched an excerpt, went to real clear politics late last night or late yesterday afternoon after, um, after I watched the race. So, so I missed it, but I heard it was a good one, but it was a good one until we had a kind of a changing <laughs> you're, you're, Hey, your guy ended up, this winning. is pretty weird. Um, there was a race back in the seventies. Mine might've been the eighties, uh, when someone was caught with a too large, um, than legal gas tank. And I mean, that's, that's like steroids. I mean, if a guy has, you know, a 20 gallon gas tank and another guy's a 25 gallon gas tank, I mean, you got to do something about that. But, um, the Gibbs team, the Joe Gibbs teams, uh, we'll get inside racing here for a second. Uh, you got really and truly about, uh, well, I mean, the Gibbs and the Hendrick teams over the past, what decade or so have been the dominant teams really for probably longer than that. I mean, you've had track house and you've had, you know, um, Stuart Haas racing and Stuart Haas Childress. racing and you had Childress, uh, especially when Earnhardt Sr. was alive. Um, that was 20 years ago. But the past, I mean, the Hendrick Gibbs cars, the Toyotas and the Chevrolets have, um, and I got Ford buddies of mine. I said, well, they should. They get all the rule breaks, <laughs> uh, you know, and maybe they do, maybe they don't. But those have been the dominant teams. Um and all of a sudden, yesterday, the Hendrick cars just couldn't keep up with the Gibbs cars. I mean, they just couldn't. Um, I'm thinking about Chase Elliott and Kyle Larson driving for Hendrick and Denny Hamlin and Kyle Busch driving for, for Gibbs, Toyotas, and Chevrolets. And, I mean, Chase and, and Kyle Larson just flat out couldn't keep well, up. now you know why. Well, I mean, you, uh, do we? Maybe. I mean, I, mean, I don't may, know. Maybe there I don't was know what some the infraction of, um, was. Well, I mean, it was some sort of, um, in the post-race inspection, it was found that the, that the Gibbs cars had some sort of um, components in the front end of the car that they weren't supposed to have. Um, they shiver the car. Now, see, a lot of people are saying, well, I mean, it cleared pre-race inspection, but the post-race, in, this post-race inspections are a lot more thorough than the, uh, the pre-race. And from what I'm gathering from my sources in racing, um, which is Twitter, um, <laughs> they're, right. they're saying that um, as they pulled the wrap away, they found something some sort of a, a material that shouldn't have been there. Now, I don't have any idea what that is, but they led um, race fans to believe it was something aero. I mean, downforce is a big deal with this new next-gen car, and um, and Pocono's a track that requires a great deal of downforce. Um, in other words, it keeps the car glued to the track. You could turn at a higher speed. I mean, imagine if you're trying to turn in a corner at 180 miles an hour, downforce and keeping that car kind of glued to the track's a big deal. And, um, and apparently the car that finished first and second, which are the Gibbs cars, the Toyotas of Denny Hamlin and Kyle Larson, 
And they, I mean, they just kind of had their way yesterday. I mean, there was a, a, a time or two it looked like Larson or Elliott could keep up, but I think Ross Chastain with Trackhouse kept up a little bit until Denny Hamlin returned a favor that he owed him uh, from several weeks back. Kind of, um, you race me as I race you. But um, so I get home last night, left the beach, watched the race at the beach, um, get home, and um, my son texts me the the article, and it was like a Yahoo Sports article that said Elliott had been declared the winner, and I said well, I just watched it. I mean, he came in third. You know, he got outrun by the two Toyotas. And I saw, begin reading the article. Well, I mean, that may or may not be why he got outrun. Then NASCAR sent someone out to give a um, kind of a, an update as to why they, and from what they led me to believe, and I'm reading between the lines here as an old race fan, um, when they took the wrap off to inspect, it, 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 it kind of suggests to me they might have been suspicious to begin with. You know, how are these cars that good? You know, how do they have um, that much of an advantage over um, the other cars that looked like they couldn't? I mean, everybody was in there together except these two cars, and it looked like to me they could have just kind of, I mean, it's a little, I'll tell you, as, as an old race fan who watches a lot, it looked to me like Hamlin and Bush could have lapped the field had they chosen to, but they didn't want to make it that obvious. So they would run off to a, a second or two lead, and you wondered whether they were just kind of pacing themselves. In other words, somebody saying, hey, we're going to be faster than anybody. I'll assure you of that. Don't make it too obvious. Don't make it too obvious. I mean, don't get out there and get 10 seconds ahead of the field. But um, but anyway, yeah, Chase Elliott finished third, and then he finishes first. And, and it's kind of a weird way, because I was thinking about this this morning, driving over. Um, if you're Elliott and you finish third, do you really want that win? But if you're Elliott finished third and feel like the cars had such a big advantage, in other words, if you're a defensive lineman, the guy in front of you is taking steroids, you know, and he's 100 pounds stronger, and, uh, you know, he's uh, – you can't – Take I mean, the W. Sure. I mean, you got to take the W. I mean, technically, so, you I mean, what, what would have happened had, you know, the Hamlin and Bush cars not been found illegal? But but the better question is what would have happened had they not put those whatever in front of the car, the arrow uh, advantage that they created. And once again, I have no idea. I am so interested in it, though. I mean, I want to know right now what they did. Was it some sort of polyfiber? Was it weight? Was it um? Was it a redesign? Because they have templates. I mean, they have lasers to check the templates on these cars. It's pretty. I mean, it's pretty but, advanced. But whatever it is, I'd like to find out. Just because you know, what did they do? What is the innovation? What did they figure out? Well, I mean, it's, it's run with a toothpick. Remember, we yeah. talked a couple of weeks oh, ago yeah. about you know the guy that exactly. barely got out of high school. Um, and they they walk around these garages and, and somewhere at the Gibbs Racing Team. Uh, runt said, <laughs> "I'm using Runt <laughs> as an example. Uh, runt with a toothpick in his mouth said." If we shave that front end down and add another 20 pounds, that thing will stick to the track like glue. And some engineer and, and Toyota said, what do you mean? He said, I promise you, if y'all are letting me put a little extra weight in the front of that car or, or shave the car, I don't know, whatever they did. Um, but, yeah, I would imagine this was much more driven by Runt and Toyota than Toyota. But Runt's probably got a big trouble with Toyota this morning. I would imagine there's a Zoom call in store or some sort of a – because Toyota doesn't want to be found cheating you know, and Gibbs certainly doesn't want to be found cheating. Um, but they all look for an edge. I mean, that racing is historically known for teams, you know, looking for an edge. Uh, Daryl Waltrip said it best. Daryl Waltrip said the, the rule book says what you can't do. It doesn't say what you can. You know, and if it doesn't speak <laughs> specifically to a rule, then you kind of take liberties. But they sure. made it very clear. Push the edge. But, but, it, but they made it very clear in the next-gen car. They don't want you messing around with the car. I mean, in the old days, you could kind of, you know, twist and turn. I mean, they're all kind of stories. And, and, you, and race fans know this. I mean, everybody did something. 
I mean, there, you know, there were um, th- there was nitrous bottles hid in roll cages. I mean, there were trap doors that let weight out of the car. Uh, you know, you go weigh the car and it weighed thirty five hundred pounds. Well, if you can trim a hunt to two hundred pounds off of it, you you go a lot faster. And Daryl Waltrip says there was a little trap door in Junior's car that they would let steel bearings out. You know, and and uh, they would look around the track and say, "Well, these steel bearings <laughs> coming from." And Daryl said we'd drop about two hundred pounds after we. Um, there was uh, Junior Johnson was famous for taking rocks and putting them inside the shocks in the old days, the spring shocks, and um, the car would make it would make uh, it would go through testing or excuse me, go through inspection, and it would be the right height. And then you get out and drive around the track, and the spring would unload and unload a couple of times, and it would crack the rock. And the next thing you know, the car's sitting on the ground. You know, it's, it's a big aero factor there. So anyway, um, that's more racing than you probably care. Pretty cool, uh, though. Well, it's very cool. It's not cool if you're a Toyota. It's not cool if you're a uh, Kyle Busch or Denny Hamlin fan. Uh, very cool if you're a Chase Elliott fan. <laughs> and, and you know, I got buddies who are kind of, kind of um, they're conflicted with Chase Elliott because his father was so successful in a Ford, and he's driving a Chevrolet. And there are race fans who pull for anybody driving a Ford, anybody driving a Chevrolet. And um, so, you know, hey, there, there's the um, there's the race wrap-up brought to you by Bird of a Thousand Gods because we don't have a lot of football to talk um, yet. Uh, NFL, I was coming home yesterday from the beach. ESP and radio was talking NFL instead of NBA. They refused to talk college sports. I, I actually, they did have a show about college sports yesterday, early afternoon. Okay. I, I was listening a little bit before the Braves game went on the air on the ESPN radio station. And and they did have a college football show. on. So, Interesting. In, in fact, it stood out to me for the very reason you're talking about. But it's professional sports. I mean, it's the NBA. It's a little bit of Major League Baseball. It's not a lot of Major League Baseball. It's the NBA and NFL. I mean, it's the yep. NBA when it ain't the NFL. It's the NFL when it ain't. The NBA, and you and I have talked about this. Um, I would imagine it's the it's the radio markets. You know, these big markets where the majority of their um, their listeners and they are professional teams. And then let's markets. let's be candid. I mean, I may get in trouble when I say this. ESPN has embraced this urban flavor. I mean, it's it's you know they're they're obviously seeking a larger and larger and larger African American audience. Um, and I would imagine that's in some of their research. It's owned by Disney. Um, so what ESPN does, I would imagine is directed by Disney in some way, shape or form. And they have taken, I'll say this, um, well, I, I, I'm not going to be careful. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be insensitive, nor am I trying to stir up anything, but the majority of people on ESPN today are, um, you know, ethnic or, or female. I mean, they really are, you know, I was coming home yesterday and it was, uh, it's like female after female, after female, after female, and, you know, what Disney has up their sleeves, I don't have any idea. But ESPN is very, very different today than it was um, in years gone by. And I would imagine they've employed a strategy that, <laughs> is it woke? I don't know. I don't know what woke is in sports. But um, but the majority, there, they have made a decision that they're going to center their programming on radio. I don't know about television because I don't watch a lot of ESPN anymore. But on, on radio, it's obvious that they're going to pay uh, special attention to the NBA and now the NFL. And the NFL is still the 800-pound gorilla uh, in the room. I mean, the 800 uh, might be the 1,000-pound gorilla in the room. The NFL is the dominant force in all of sports today. NASCAR, Indy racing, college football, Major League Baseball, uh, it doesn't matter. The NFL dominates the, the sports and entertainment landscape 
um, unlike any other. Um, okay. But they did pay some attention to Major League Baseball, but really it was around the All-Star game and the Home Run Derby and, and uh, you yeah, know, they get a little bit of love for but the, MLB. But, but the numbers for the MLB All-Star game sucked. Yeah. I mean, they were terrible. You know, the ratings and the overnights and all of it. It was just, uh, I mean, they were mom, baseball, apple pie, and Chevrolet. Talking about Chevrolet a second ago. <laughs> um, our, our national pastime is now clearly football, and um, the NFL is the dominant force and feature in that. Um, I read somewhere the other day that game six of last year's World Series would have been the the 80th rate ranked game in the NFL. Might have been the 81st game in the NFL, in other words, of the, what is it, uh, 30 teams? Ah, no, the third. How many NFL teams? I think 30 Major League Baseball teams. How many NFL teams are there? 20, 32? Okay, there's 32 NFL teams. They play 14 games a season. Uh, how many NFL, there are 14 games, excuse me, 14. How many NFL games are there a week? I'm trying to figure out how many. The Major League Baseball, uh, game six of the World Series, will the Braves beat the... Astros? Astros, yeah. When they won the world championship last year against the Astros, that would have been the 81st highest rated um, football game. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I get your point there. No, no, no. Bobby, it hurts. No, I mean, Major League, well, I mean, it, it, um, it's not, I mean, college football's the same. Right. You know, I mean, it trails at the NBA. I mean, I think I read the other day where the NBA had 5 million or more viewers in like seven games. The Thursday night exhibition game. Between the Minnesota Vikings and the you know the St. Louis Cardinals had like four and a half million fans. So an exhibition game in on Thursday night on the NFL Network gets about as many viewers as. But it's all about fantasy. I mean, it's about fantasy and it's about you know b- uh, gambling. I mean that's that's why the NFL is really taken off. Uh, how many people? I mean, I got three kids. All three play fantasy football. Um, they're a little bit like me. They know the Braves won the world championship. They it, they would have to scratch their head about who did they who did they beat. You know they know the Braves won because we kind of grew up Braves fans. But they would have to go yeah Astros Astros that's it. Um, but if you ask them who the third leading receiver in the national you know the the NFC West is, I mean they could rattle that off like really? nobody's business. Well, I kind of these- tuned out of. I was doing fantasy football for a number of years, and then you know when they went woke and. Kaepernick did his thing. I just got so disinterested. Well, I mean, MLB went woke. They moved the All Star game. I know they did. I mean, so, so if you're looking for an unwoke professional <laughs> sports league, um, good luck with that. I mean, NASCAR doesn't let sponsors that sell guns. I mean, Remington is not allowed. I mean, imagine this: is there any more a uh, what I'd call a conservative sport than NASCAR? But still, NASCAR had a couple of gun manufacturers that wanted to sponsor cars, and they sat down as a um, kind of an executive committee and said, um, I think we're better off not going down that road. So if NASCAR is kind of heading down the road of woke, you can only imagine what some of these other um, – this is a big week. And the reason it's a big week is we had turning points take place this weekend in, uh, in Florida. And um, I'm going to try to get Robert to come on maybe tomorrow or Wednesday to walk us through – uh, there's a lot of polling out there, and this is Trump's week. I mean, from now until next. I think the, um, if I'm not mistaken, the Republican primary in Arizona is next Tuesday. Yeah, next Tuesday, uh, August 2nd, if I'm not mistaken. Confirm that for me if you don't mind, Rev. Okay. But I think the Arizona Republican primary is August 2nd, and Trump has a lot at stake here. And I think August 2nd is the day that he makes a decision whether he's in or not. I mean, I think he's already made his mind up. 
And, and I'm, I'm telling you, uh, this is what I've heard from people on the outer inner circle. If there's an outer inner circle, it is that he wants to run, but his kids aren't sure he should. I mean, that's kind of what I'm hearing from the outside or the outer inner circle. But if if Blake Masters does as well as it looks like he may do. August 2nd. Okay, right. August 2nd, a week from tomorrow. Uh, a week from tomorrow is a big day, guys. Trust me on this. It's a big day because Kerry Lake is running against Mike Pence endorsed um, Karen Taylor Robson. She is a, um, a wealthy real estate um, lawyer. And Carrie Lake is a former Obama-supporting television news anchor lady. I mean, that seems to be kind of the candidate we're looking for today. Um, photogenic, charismatic, good on television. Um, she is a was a pretty successful anchor lady in the Phoenix Television Network, which is probably what the biggest network in in I'm in Arizona. Um, very well known. She was a um, I don't say never Trumper, but she was an Obama. She donated a little bit of money to Obama was involved in activism for Obama, but she says she saw the light. She says uh, she's come around to become uh, a hardcore America first Republican. Uh, Mike Pence has endorsed Karen Taylor Robson. Donald Trump has endorsed Kerry Lake. Um, and then you've got Blake Masters. And if Kerry Lake wins the Republican primary in Arizona and Blake Masters wins the Republican primary in Arizona, Trump's got to run. I mean, he just does. I mean, I think we're better off if he doesn't, but but he's certainly not going to listen to me. If he doesn't listen to his kids, he's not going to listen <laughs> listen to yours truly. And then we got to get a, a, kind of our arms around this age factor. You know, how are we going to be as highly critical of an 80-year-old or an 81- or 2-year-old Joe Biden when we're asking a 78-year-old go, guy to— But, to, but there appears to be really uh, no comparison. Well, I mean, th- there, there appears to be, uh, except the day they were born. I mean, the day they were born, did Biden look this way four years ago? He did not. Okay. I mean, could is, is that something Trump could, I mean, could this happen to Trump in four years? I mean, 80-year-old is, is, I mean, that's, that's getting to be a point in your life where you lose some capacity. I mean, you just do. You're not as, um, you're not as on it. You're not as with it at 80 years old as you are as a 60-year-old. I and mean, there's a reason Fortune 500 CEOs are, are 60. And then politicians are 80-some-odd years old. I mean, a, a Fortune 500 company does not want their CEO to be 80 years old because they don't believe he's at his best or she's at her best. And um, But I do believe that next Tuesday is a defining moment in the 2024 presidential election because, once again, Blake Masters was a prohibitive underdog until Peter Thiel and, and Donald Trump show up. Kerry Lake was a prohibitive underdog until Trump shows up. And if he carries that sort of weight still in the Republican primary, and we'll talk about some of the uh, turning points polling that um, Trafalgar did over the weekend, and this is young Republicans. I mean, this is under the age of 30, by and large. And um, I just think there's a lot to see this week leading up to the uh, Arizona primary and, um, and as to whether or not we're going to talk about Donald Trump um, leading a movement as a candidate or on the periphery as somewhat of a kingmaker, an endorser extraordinaire. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. At Turning Point USA down in Florida over the weekend, um, there was a question posed to a group of, um, I, I, get, I don't want to say all America First activists, but it's a, um, it's a group that was bred or born out of this America First movement uh, the majority of America Firsters are over the age of 45, 
I mean, there's some polling that shows this. Um, the sensibilities of young voters are um, something that the America First movement's really trying to understand um, how to entice, how to engage, how to inform, how to adapt, how to, I don't know, um, relate, you know, this agenda, this energy to a group of younger voters who want to be conservative. They want to vote Republican. Um, they're just kind of a, like a lot of us at a crossroads. Do we do this? Do we do that? So Turning Points USA meets Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump both made appearances. Um, Candace Owens, a lot of the, it's kind of the, um, it's the who's who of Republican America first politics. And it's, it's still kind of interesting to me. Um, Larry Hogan wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend where he basically said that, um, you know, the Republicans have done what you would expect the Trump Republicans to do, um, fringe and conspiracy theorist. And, and I, I began thinking about that, you know, throwing around the words fringe and conspiracy theorist marginalize, you know, it, 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 it paints a picture a certain way that I think is totally inaccurate. But here's what is, is so, I don't say encouraging, but, but interesting to me. Um, when you ask about 3,000 Republicans under the age of 30 who they would vote for if Donald Trump decides to run, 78% said Trump. Now, now, once again, that's the question. It's not, you know, if Trump or DeSantis ran. I mean, the question was posed, if Donald Trump decides to run, how many of you would vote for Donald Trump? And nearly 8 in 10 said they would. Now, I believe there's some peer effect here. I mean, I believe, you know, the majority of these young people that go to turning points, I mean, it's not the, um, it's not the alumni softball game of the National Review. It's not the, 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 Harvard, the Harvard Republican Party, um, you know, 35-year reunion. I mean, this is a new and unique political animal. Um, if Trump doesn't run, I mean, there's another question. Who do you want to run? And Ron DeSantis, I think, was like 66 or 67%. It's as you and I would, would mostly think, it's a two-horse race. And it's really a one-horse race. If Trump runs, he wins. If Trump doesn't run and DeSantis does, he wins. And I don't know that we've ever had something this easy to predict. Uh, now, now, once again, the Wall Street Journal will argue, no, that's not the case. Because Larry Hogan says these fringe conspiracy theorists are, um, you know, and I, I would imagine expect Chuck Todd or George Stephanopoulos to trot Larry Hogan back out there in a week or two or three. You know, uh, Liz Cheney. I watched a good bit of her yesterday, um, the virtuous soul she is, trying to oh. lecture to the American people. Oh, yeah. um, and then, you know, Brett Baer finally uh, kind of goes there with her about, you know, you're 22 points down in your election. But, I mean, she's trying to basically save democracy, and she's a, um, I mean, she's a heroine. You know, she, she is the one person that stands in the way of, you know, Donald Trump destroying everything Jefferson and Adams and Madison and Washington put in place. Uh, the absurdity of this. Here's the interesting part of all this to me, and I think Newt Gingrich says this extremely well. It's not that we love Trump. It's that we despise the establishment. You know, if you if you asked me, um, okay, one's got to be ranked number one, one's got to be ranked number two, your, your adoration for Trump or your disdain for the establishment, which one is one and which one is two? My adoration for Trump would easily be number two. I mean, I, you know, Trump's a bulldog. He's the pit bull. He's the bull. I have more disdain for the establishment as 
every day passes, well, I mean, my disdain grows. And when you think about the January 6th hearing, and Newt said this yesterday on, uh, on Fox, when you think about the January 6th hearing, so before the hearings began, about 62% of Americans cross party lines believe that Trump was largely responsible for the events of January 6th. Today, that number's 58. So fewer people believe today, after all they've done in this one-sided witch hunt, show trial, whatever you want to call it, and they signed up, I think, for a second season. I see where they've got a new producer in. I mean, it's almost like American Idol season two, you know, the voice season two. <laughs> of course they So the January 6th hearing is going to have a season two, I think. So when you look at Cheney, you know, conversing, with George Stephanopoulos or, or Chuck Todd or Brett Baer, for that matter. And, um, folks, I, I tell you, uh, I have respect for Brett Baer. He's not one of us, but he's simply not because he had so many chances to contradict what Cheney said or at least confront her. Um, when when he went through, and it's kind of a litany of, of items, when it, when he started Brett Baer, I kind of got a little bit excited about it when Baer said, well, you know, um, the American people have not, I mean, you've not moved the meter. And, uh, you know, Jim Jordan was not allowed to sit. Jim Baker, not Jim Baker. Yeah, that might have been Baker, was not allowed to sit. A couple of our pro-Trump Republicans were not allowed to sit on the committee. Um, you were appointed as, as the, uh, the ranking member by the minority, uh, excuse me, the majority. That's never, ever. We've never had a select committee in American political history where the, the majority leader appointed both the chairman and the ranking member. I mean, that's never happened before, but here we are. And um, and when when she said, well, I mean, I don't, I don't know about what you're talking about, Brett, but let me tell you the facts. Well, Bear should have said, is anything I just said unfactual? I mean, is anything I just said inaccurate? I mean, before you go on to your diatribe and, and political speech, is there anything I just laid out that is inaccurate? But he didn't do it. He didn't do it because there's a place in his heart that would rather Trump drive off into the sunset and the America First movement kind of dissipate and not be as effective. But but what you've got to understand, what I think, but I think I understand this to some degree. It's not the way we adore Trump. It's the way we despise the establishment. The elite establishment in American politics today is is something that I find so uh, disgusting and irredeemable. Um, I know that's how they feel about me. So, so I and just kind of want to return the favor there, but they believe that this is all about a, a, a certain adoration. The American people have with a certain political figure. There's some of that. And there's some of you that feel that way, but the majority of this energy is because we find them to be so disgusting and Trump's kind of, um, he's there by default. You know, he's the only guy that shows the gumption that's willing to call it like he sees it and stand up to some of these forces that need to be stood up against. Let's go to the phone. Carl in the PD. Good morning, Carl. Ken. Ken, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Oh, okay. How, how can you hold Brett Bear his feet to the fire um, and and say he needed to – he's not one of us because he didn't put the, um, you know, put the fire to Liz Cheney or call her out when you don't call out Scott Kaufman week after week. Those aren't anywhere near the same. Liz Cheney's a member of Congress. Scott Kaufman's a college professor. That's, that's an easy answer. I mean, those aren't even remotely close to one another, but maybe they're friends. They're both, they're both spewing falsehoods and they, they, they're, they're, they're getting their, their message out to 
um, a large audience. But anyway, I was I I had. No, I, I mean I, I, I got to challenge that. you there. That's not even remotely close. A college professor as a guest on a radio show is nothing, nothing remotely close to a member of Congress sitting on a select committee as the ranking member. I mean, th- th- those are just in completely different universes as far as I'm concerned. No, well, she she was a guest on his show because she doesn't come up there every week. No, she's a member of Congress. But but she is not a regular contributor to his program. Correct. She's a member of Congress. I mean, that's why she was asked to appear. Right. And for some reason, you 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 asked Scott Kaufman to appear, but he's not a you know he he's he's a regular contributor. He's every week unless he can't make it. But anyway, I didn't call. I I called about um, you know the Trump thing. Um. Yeah, as far as Trump's age and his ability is, is concerned, you know, you got you you're doing a little fake news, a lot, a lot of fake news with Biden. Biden is not declining. Okay, we got to stop that. He didn't decline once he became president. Okay, bad cat care and true international suffered pressure and uh, Super Thursday, all of that happened before the uh, 2020 election and um, Trump was trying to be nice and he called him um, he, he called he well he wanted to call him slow Joe but he called you know he had his nickname for him and and everybody he he made it clear look this guy is he's done his mind is gone before the election so we got to stop I mean I, if, if I ask you anything don't do the fake news of saying, you know, Biden just declined since he became president. No, he did not decline. He was he was done and over before the election. And if anything else, you know, you know, those those that bad a cask and then those are just three that just were off the top of my head. There's a I mean, I'm sure if I go to my Facebook, I could find another dozen. He was not he did not decline since he's become president. He was gone before. You don't and think he's worse today than he was when he got elected? Well, I mean, how, no. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think I mean, I mean, I, I, he I was already declining really, before really the election. I mean, he's, he's, in, he's in perpetual <laughs> decline. And I'm not one to sit here to try to defend Joe Biden, but but I'll go back to an example. He actually he called and did an interview with one of our sister radio stations in the cluster here back in 2019. So it was you know quite a while before the, as the primaries were starting to crank up. And he was a different person then than he is Well, that's now. why I said a second ago, four years ago. I mean, what was Biden like four years ago? In the last four years, Joe Biden has declined dramatically in his cognitive abilities. Well, I, 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 no, I don't think he's declined dramatically. No, no, we all, we all get older, and the only people who get better, I guess, are, are little kids that get smarter until they get to a, an adult age. Mm-hmm. But anybody, anybody, in, you know, past age forty, is you know going to, uh, you know, going to lose a little bit. But no, he, you gotta, gotta stop saying, oh, he's, he's way worse. No, because then people are gonna forget. All of the missteps and everything that he—I mean, he—he he lost his. Well, he didn't know if he was in Iraq or um, or, or Iowa when he was out. Um, I, I remember that he would—he would stop in a place and he say, "It's great to be here in Minnesota," 
and he was in Maine or something. So, no, he's not. Stop, stop saying that he's declined. He's not declined. He was already down before he got elected. Thank you, Carl. Appreciate it. Joe Biden is in perpetual decline. Yeah, I don't understand. It's been happening for a while. Sure. Right? He, I mean, he, he was not in good shape when he ran for office. There's no will, doubt about it. He will be less cognitively or he will be more cognitively impaired today than he was yesterday. I mean, I, I would imagine COVID will take a toll on um, on Joe Biden. Here's what the, the Republicans have to get their arms around. Uh, are you comfortable voting for a 78-year-old man? I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I can't answer that. It worries me a bit, but it does. I mean, I'd vote for Trump in a minute, but but I wish he weren't 78. I mean, it really bothers me to go cast a ballot for a man who's 78 years old because, I mean, I think we all agree that at some point in time, everybody, I mean, I've never been the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I'm not as sharp now, you know, pushing 60 as I was at 40 or 45. I'll, my wife kind of laughs at me every now and then wandering around the house looking for my keys. I mean, I never laid my keys down somewhere I didn't know where they were. I never looked for, you know, or did I remember this or did I, did, did I do that? I mean, I did, did, hey, did, did I lock my truck? I mean, I never, ever, ever questioned myself about those things. Uh, and I'm not 78. I'm not remotely close to 78. And I'm not comparing Trump to Biden. I mean, I think Biden, I mean, I think Biden is a, is a feeble man who has a serious cognitive issue that the, the Democrats and the media are running interference on behalf of. Is it dementia? Is it Alzheimer's? I have no idea what it is. I'm not equipped to medically examine up close, much less from afar. But Joe Biden has a serious, serious problem, and he's in perpetual decline. Carl and I just disagree. I think he's worse today than he was yesterday. I think odds are, and the, the health trajectory uh, mentally for Joe Biden is suggest that he'll be worse in a year from now than he is today. But, but I think I said earlier, four years ago, I mean, Biden was not this. I mean, he, he made a lot of gaffes and mistakes, and he said things, and you kind of scratch your head. But but Joe Biden appeared to be uh, far more coherent four years ago than he is today. Now, now, once again, the strategy in the election, lock him in the basement, don't let him address the public, let Trump say crazy things, and beat himself. Now, now whether they want it fair and square or not, we've got a man in serious, serious um, cognitive decline Who's our president today? And the day he was sworn in, he was not in good shape. No, he not, was not, not at all, and, and not up to the task. And it was pretty obvious some of the um, some of the things he said. And he's gotten worse. Hold on to that. I don't want to get too far behind. We're already too far behind. And then the first talking about racing and football is what gets us behind, <laughs> and we're trying to catch up. Take a break. Back in just a minute. You know, when you look at the majority of polling, uh, the recent polling, uh, Trump wins in a Trump Biden head to head matchup. I mean, I've seen numbers. Uh, I think uh, Emerson had it 45-44 Trump. Uh, I think Trafalgar has it 47-43-ish. I mean, they're all within the margin of error, but I just find that very interesting. But are we going to get to a place in America where uh, an 81-year-old an at the time, what will Biden be, 81 or 82? An 82-year-old man in cognitive decline, in serious cognitive decline, and I don't care what Carl says, he was in bad shape when he got elected. He's in worse shape today and will probably be in worse shape tomorrow um, because he's an old dude who has some issues. But are we okay with 78-year-old Donald Trump? I mean, it's easy to say, well, he's not as bad as Biden. But, I mean, is a 78-year-old guy at the top of his game, is that the kind of guy you want making, you know, the decisions that direct the country? Policy. Um, and, and, you know, are we going to go to Ukraine? Are we going to further involve ourselves in Ukraine? Um, I, I get it. I mean, some 78-year-olds are sharper than other 78-year-olds. 
um i mean we know the state that biden's in do we truly know um what sort of um i mean we know that trump's kind of a vibrant guy he's a business guy those folks always get up in the morning they have to uh the busy head syndrome is probably something he's deeply afflicted with and i think that keeps you spry and keeps you you know uh your juices flowing and you're on top of your game but he's still 78 or will be 78 when he gets um when and if he runs and if he gets elected um that puts him at 82 years old um by the time how much does someone normally decline from 78 to 82 I mean, I, I just think these are serious questions that we've got to, you guys, when you, when, you, when you begin debating or arguing or disagreeing, you've got to accept that your argument probably doesn't come from the perfect place. I mean, that's the frustration I have a lot of times when you talk with a Democrat or a Republican. Um, they, they're real good about telling you everything wrong with the Democrats or the Republicans, but they don't accept any shortcomings on their side of the equation. It, it's all about them. You know, they, they suck. They're no good. Their candidate is in cognitive decline. Uh, what about this side? I mean, let's, let's candidly and honestly um, do, do somewhat of a, um, a dissecting of what we believe. And... Um, well, let me ask you this, Rev. Um, does it concern you at all that Trump will be 78 asking for your vote? Yes. Okay, that should. I mean, that, that's mm-hmm. an honest answer. That's a candid answer. I mean, you'd vote for him. I'd vote for him. In a minute. In a, in a skinny minute. But but it does worry me a little bit that I'm casting a ballot for a 78-year-old guy. Um, I would probably rather cast a ballot for a 45- or 50-year-old guy. Uh, I don't think there's any – I don't think that's controversial at all. I think it's a little bit commonsensical. Take a break. We'll be back. In just a few minutes. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937. Could be worse. It could be Diddy Hamlet or Kyle Bush. And thank you, won a race. Thank you, finished second. Um, I was thinking about this. Joe Gibbs has always uh, been perceived as a very, very devout um, Christian who does the right thing more times than not. What did Gibbs know? And what will uh, he do if he didn't know? In other words, I would imagine some of these um, crew chiefs have a lot of uh, discretion. They have a lot of autonomy on what to do to the car and what not to do uh, on the car. I don't think Joe Gibbs knows what sort of brake pads they put on the car or what sort of um, uh, what sort of front end there is on on the car. But he's the boss. I mean, he's the captain of the ship. It's Joe Gibbs racing, and I'm not to belabor the point. Or but but, but the the twelve, excuse me, the eighteen and the eleven, uh, or the the Denny Hamlin car and the Kyle Busch car finished first and second yesterday. And were found, they failed post-race inspection because of a feature. Uh, it's called a front fascia feature that did not meet um, the post-race inspection found that there was something there that shouldn't have been there. But, but you don't think the, the, the guys in the shop, <clears throat> runt as you call them. Um, runt with a toothpick in his mouth. But they don't, t- they don't say, hey, tell Mr. Gibbs we found this thing we're going to try. I, I would imagine Mr. Gibbs says we need to win. <laughs> and, uh, and probably don't tell me what you do what i don't know i don't know and um and apparently nascar was so bothered by what the two cars did that they dq'd i mean there's always been uh not always but a lot of times there's post-race inspection failures and you get dock points or a crew chief put, put on probation or you know but never disqualified and that's what leads me to believe that it was pretty egregious and gave them a pretty distinct competitive advantage over the field, if that is indeed um, the case. So I was uh, just had my eyes on Fox News Channel here a second ago, and this straw poll out of the 
Turning Point USA over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Trump comes out with almost 80 percent. You know, mm-hmm. who would you prefer uh, to be your nominee for president? If he runs. If I mean, he that, runs. That, that, so, so think about that now. It's not who do you prefer. If Donald Trump runs, um, who would you vote for? And 80 percent. But because I think it's a little unfair, and I think Trump, the Trump crowd will say, well, 80 percent want him to run. No, that's not the truth. It's not the wording of the question. 80 percent will vote for him if he does decide to run. The, the, the more interesting question that we don't know the answer to, how many of them want him to run? Um, why was that not asked? I mean, to me, that's the most important question. How many want him to run? Um, and then, obviously, there are a lot of people that are going to vote for him if he does indeed decide to run. And obviously, DeSantis was in second place in this poll. I noticed Nikki Haley was down there at 0.3 percent, mm-hmm. just as a and just I, just something I noticed. Well, Rev, I think a lot of these candidates have have, have they've they've misunderstood how intense the America First energy. They listen to the Wall Street Journal. They listen to the New York Times. They listen to Fox News to some degree. And they say this energy will die down. It it will wane. The Trump force, the Trump factor, the Trump effect will not be as um, monumental in the future as it is today. And I don't see any sign of that. I mean, I really and truly, and once again, I don't think the energy is um, the adoration for Donald Trump. I think there's some of that. And I think he deserves some of that. Of course he does. Um, I think the majority of it is the disdain that the American people have for the elite establishment. That is the, to me, that's the central energy and why this movement is going to sustain and is going to highly affect national politics over the next, uh, for the rest of my adult life. I mean, I think the balance of my adult life will live with a an America first movement, kind of a non-interventionist, non-globalist, populist-centered movement. I mean, it'll, it'll ebb and flow. It'll move around a little bit. It won't always be uh, exactly about this or exactly about that. But I think this energy is not going to dissipate. It's going to be effective. It's going to transform the Republican Party. And I think some of that starts next week. And that's what I was going to say. So we come out of the Turning Point USA straw poll. I mean, Trump, I mean, that's that's very positive, regardless of the wording of the question. That is I mean, correct. Almost 80 uh, percent have chosen him as the preferred candidate. Over anybody else. Right. So that's major. But but you think coming out of that, then the, the primary in Arizona next Tuesday, the second, uh, will will kind of set the stage and maybe it's very important to whether Trump would run I mean, or not? If you, if you have an interest in running. And, and you go to Turning Points, which is 3,000 Republican activists under the age of 30. Everybody's not under the age of 30, but Turning Points USA is a grassroots organization that is now, I mean, it's, it's, they're in it for the money now, but it's still centered around young conservatives. Names like Candace Owens, Correct. Charlie Kirk. That's right. Some of the media pundits, uh, Tucker Carlson would be some, someone that they would pay close attention to. Um, some of the, Ben Shapiro would be another person that they pay close attention to. Um, it's kind of interesting, you know, um, Trump 78, they're not. And there's still this bridge. There's this connection they have with the former president. But I do believe that Arizona is essential to Trump uh, deciding what to do or not. Nobody's going to tell Trump what to do. I mean, I think we can all agree to that. I mean, that's established. Donald Trump walks to the beat of his own drum, does what he wants to do, when he wants to do, how he wants to do. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. Um, I think if he take advice a little, uh, a little better, he'd probably save himself some of the um, uh, the political exposure that he creates for himself. But I think if Blake Masters, I mean, when the Trump endorsement comes, I mean, Masters said himself, my 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 campaign took off like a rocket ship. 
And I think the gubernatorial race between a very qualified candidate in Karen Taylor Robson, who recently picked up the endorsement of Mike Pence. See, the, the media is trying to give Pence a lot of credit for Kemp in uh, the Kemp-Purdue election were the, I don't know, the last big election where Trump and Pence were on different teams. Kemp kills Purdue. And the national media says, well, Mike Pence is the one you pay to pay close attention to. I don't buy that for a second. I think Brian Kemp had solidified his standing in Georgia. I think Brian Kemp has done a good job as governor of Georgia. And I think Trump, I think Trump overplayed his hand there. I think Purdue's not a good candidate. Trump, uh, excuse me, Kemp is a good candidate. I think a lot of Trump voters voted for Kemp. Obviously, a lot of Trump voters voted for Kemp. And, uh, and that proves to me that there's a, a place where the loyalty ends. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll be with Trump here and here and here and here, but I'm not going there. I, I, you know, I'm not going to let Donald Trump tell me what to do on every front and in every election. And Brian Kemp's been a good governor. He didn't do exactly what Donald wanted done, but that's not good enough for me to throw him to the wolves. And, you know, I just don't think Purdue's a good candidate. So, so, but, but yeah, I think Blake Masters and Kerry Lake, if Masters wins the Republican primary in Arizona next Tuesday and Kerry Lake wins the Republican primary for governor next Tuesday, I don't know how Trump doesn't run. I mean, that, that is a, that, that will be a, a monumental moment in his um, deciding because once again, Masters was not the favorite. Lake was not the favorite, and Trump's endorsement kind of put them over the top. Combine that with his turning point USA poll, and and you got a guy who likes adoration. He likes the ego, or excuse me, the the bright lights. And I, I just think he's that's that's when he'll be. I think that's when he goes to his kids and say, "Look, maybe you don't want to do this, but we must. We must." And now you've got a lot of presidential polling. And I asked Robert last week. I said, "Robert, why did you guys decide to run a poll on Biden and Trump?" He said, we were tired of the dishonest polls. I mean, the polls saying Biden would beat Trump. Uh, the, the, every poll I saw last week, Emerson, I think Quinnipiac had a poll, and Trafalgar had a poll. All three had Trump winning. Now, the Emerson poll was 45-44. The others, I think, I think Robert's poll was 49, might have been 48 to 44, had a five-point spread. I think the, the Quinnipiac or Monmouth poll, one or the other, had it about three or four. Um, but all three of the polls done last week had Trump winning over uh, Biden, if Biden is indeed the nominee. The, the craziness of this election, you've got a, a, a Democrat president who may or may not run for re-election. That's never on the table. I mean, he's always going to run. Uh, we're considering whether or not to replace the Democrat nominee. And then you've got a former president who lost to the current president in, in, in the, you know, kind of on the periphery thinking about running. I mean, it's just an odd, odd <laughs> dynamic that we're dealing with. Um, the, the, okay, you, you've got, once again, how many times has the party in power tried to replace their nominee? I mean, I can't remember it. Never in my lifetime has that happened. How many times has that been combined with a former president who right now the polls say would be reelected if he decided to run again? I mean, there's nothing Very normal. Unique. That there's nothing normal about the 2024 presidential I mean, There's been election. primary challengers before to sitting presidents. Sure. To incumbents. Sure. But there's never been an effort to try and dissuade or discourage the current president. I mean, it's almost like they're looking for an excuse. And maybe COVID is this. I mean, I don't have any idea. Uh, maybe COVID zaps the energy out of Joe Biden. And all of a sudden, you know, he's not up to the task any longer. I mean, he would have run if it weren't for COVID. I mean, you know how we told you how dangerous? See, they can kill a lot of birds with that stone. I mean, they really can. I mean, the, the deadly virus finally got to Joe Biden. 
and Biden in the name of patriotism and altruism and doing right by America is going to step aside and let Gavin Newsom or someone like that take his place. Now, that worries me. 78-year-old Donald Trump, 40-some-odd-year-old Gavin Newsom, um, elections are looking forward. Uh, the majority of campaigns are built what? Looking forward. What does tomorrow hold? 78-year-old Donald Trump, 40-some-odd-year-old. See, that, that would concern me if the Democrats replace Biden with someone much younger and, and more, I don't know, just looks more energetic, more enthusiastic about tomorrow's America. Let's go to the phone. Bert in Florence joins us next. Hey, Bert. I know you did not call for an official poll, but I'm going to get in on the front side of the poll. I want him to run. I think we need him to run. I would definitely vote for him. Uh, If he doesn't run and DeSantis says, I'll vote for him. I don't know that much about him, but he's sounding good so far. And the thing that worries me is that he's going to come to his senses and not run because if, if I were him, I think I'd be done with it. I mean, they damaged him in that first round. They're going to damage him more the second round, but we need him in there. We really do. Um, And I've always been America first because I've always been for the constitution. And I think everything we've done, like sending money to other countries and all that kind of stuff is unconstitutional. All our bases around the world are unconstitutional and our very money system is unconstitutional. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate that. Um, See, there's somebody who um, I I just think that the concern a lot of the voters that I hear from, and you're those voters, the concern I hear about DeSantis or, I mean, give me another, Josh Hawley, um, J.D. Vance, Blake Masters. I mean, there are a lot of these guys that are kind of finding their place. I think J.D. Vance has already found his place. I think he's proven by winning an Ohio primary for Senate. And, um, and I think he's the odds-on favorite. I'm not saying he's a shoe-in, but I think he's the odds-on favorite in Ohio. I think J.D. Vance is kind of, um, okay, I'm in the room. Maybe not to sit around the table yet, but I'm in the room. But, but I think the concern a lot of America First voters have is uh, the propensity for conflict. There's going to be conflict and confrontation, and this guy's already proven he'll do it. I mean, none of the others have. Do we know DeSantis? Uh, my daughter said yesterday afternoon, kind of encouraging to me, she said, it seems like DeSantis is signing a bill every day in the name of Trump's policies. That's kind of interesting from a mm-hmm. college freshman. Um, it seems to me like DeSantis is signing a bill every day in similar to what Donald Trump said we need to do. Um, now, now, in a perfect world, let, let's, let's be honest, in a perfect world, um, not your perfect world, in mine, Trump says, look, I'm too old. I mean, I'm not going anywhere, and I'm going to be as, as much a pain in their butts as I've been the, the entire time. But I, you know, I think in the, in the spirit of this party, in the spirit of this movement, Ron DeSantis is the guy that needs to lead us for the next eight years. Because think about it, Trump can't do it but four. And, and who on the other side? What about the Democrats today inspire them to go to the poll? I mean, is there anything in the Democrat Party today that is inspirational? Trump. Trump inspires the Democrats to go vote, <laughs> right? I mean, DeSantis may or may not. We know Trump does. I mean, if Donald Trump decides to run, not only does he inspire America First voters to vote as they probably never have before, but he also inspires the Democrats. And I think right now, 
Democrats have very little enthusiasm, very little reason to be excited. But the day Trump announces, the Democrats become real rejuvenated and excited and um, enthusiastic about going to the poll, voting not for Biden. Because Biden runs around telling everybody, uh, when one of the media challenged him on some of his approvals and low ratings that he said, but 92% of all Democrats said they'd vote for me. Well, they're voting against Trump. Nobody's voting for Joe Biden. Well, first of all, he turned around and kind of got mad. He said, look here, Jack. Yeah. Well, I mean, you yeah, guys I, are I, all I, the same. But that's that's kind of his cognitive. Uh, Let me tell you, 92%. But, but if you think about this, Rev, um, as long as Trump runs for dog catcher or president, everybody that goes to the poll is going to vote either for or against him. I mean, there's nobody going to vote for Biden. There's not going to be many people going to vote for Gavin Newsom. He'll be a cleaner, neater, fresher vessel or vehicle to which to vote against Trump. But if Trump runs in 24, it's the same thing as in 2020. Nobody's going to vote for anything other than for Trump or against Donald Trump. But the reason we're talking about him so much this morning is the three polls that I saw last week all had him winning the presidential election. And for the first time in, in Trump's run, the generic Republican leads the generic Democrat. But there are a lot of reasons. If you're giving Donald Trump sound political advice, and, you, and Trump's paying you money to give him political advice, let's say you're Robert Cahaley, and Cahaley's paid by Save America, and, and Robert meets with Trump, and Robert has to shoot him straight. you know, you got to tell him, Donald, if Masters wins Arizona, if Lake wins Arizona, if Cheney loses Wyoming, and you are leading Joe Biden in three polls, 80% of all young Republican activists said they're with you if you decide to run. How do you not? I mean, how do you not run when all those numerics and all those realities, political realities, are in play? I, I, just, I just think, once again, unless he just doesn't want to, unless he's tired of it and his family's tired of it, of course. Um, I mean, Mitch Daniels was encouraged like this years ago to run, and Daniels said, I just don't want any part of it. I mean, I, you know, I want to go another way in my life. And um, where does Trump go at 78? I don't know. I don't have any idea. Let's go to the phone. Steve in Florence joins us next. Hello, Steve. Good morning, guys. Yeah, as a Democrat, I don't think Gavin's any good. I don't think he'll get too many votes. They need a, like an Obama guy, like when they smooth talk and brings a little bit of energy to him. But I'm a little curious of what rhino that the Democrats are going to stick in for the debates uh, for our side. And I'll take that off the air. Thank you, Steve. I mean, I would imagine they're, they're trying that now. But, but at some point in time, it's futile. At some point in time, you just kind of say, hey, now's not the time. I mean, if you're, and here's what has happened with a lot of these talented Republican politicians. And we called this a couple of years ago. You can't have it both ways. You, you can't be kind of sort of an America first Republican and kind of sort of not. Do, do we question? Once again, we can question their sincerity. Are they lying to us or not? But, but a lot of these people, um, I think of Nikki Haley. I think of Chris Christie. Um, there, there's a handful of these who have tried to be a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and you can't be both. You're either one or the other. D -d Does anybody doubt what Blake Masters is? And once again, if he is sincere, nobody knows his heart, but Blake Masters has not said things except in support of America first. J.D. Vance has not, well, I mean, before he decides to run for office, but as a, as a politician, Nikki has tried to have it both ways. I mean, Nikki has said, uh, you know, very complimentary things about Trump and America first, very condemning or chastising things about, you know, Trump and America first. And I think that just shows in the polling. 
And when you look at the the polling and save them, excuse me, and um, and turning points, um, Trump and DeSantis are just clearly, clearly. I mean, it's not even close. There is no other lane than America First. The, you know, the 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 traditional media and and some of the political operatives have tried to express a belief that you know, well, I mean, there's a way to draw an inside flush. There is no way to draw an inside flush if you're going to run and try to win the Republican nomination for president of the United States, you better embrace America first, period. End of discussion. Forget what the Lincoln Project says. Forget what the, the talking heads and pundits who work for George Bush and John McCain on MSNBC said. I mean, they have a vested interest to squash America first. If you aren't an America first Republican, Blake Masters has a better chance of becoming president of the United States than Nikki Haley. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, Blake Masters has a better chance of winning the Republican nomination for president of the United States than Nikki Haley does. And I think Nikki tried to have it both ways, and I just don't think you can do that. I mean, she's a talented, shrewd politician. Nobody is that good. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Blake Masters needs to worry about the Arizona primary, not president of the United States. But he doesn't listen to this show, so we can throw his his name around. But Nikki's numbers at turning points. I mean, you would imagine, and a young group of diverse Republicans. That's what the Republicans are trying to. I mean, it's, it's outreach. It's young outreach. We're trying to reach out to young people to convince them that this is the better way. Nikki polled at about what? I I thought it was about point three percent. Less than one percent. On Fox this morning. Mike Pence said where. About the same. About you can't 3. have it both ways, guys. You got to be. Um, I think they respect you more if you say I'm not an America firster. I'm just not going there. I mean, I don't buy into this nationalism. I don't buy into this anti-interventionism. Uh, I don't buy into this anti-globalist economy. I mean, I think there's a fair debate to be had about that. Um, but I think once you try to be both, and I think Pence doesn't have any choice. I mean, Pence is Trump's vice president, but he's a conservative, orthodox Republican. I mean, he's kind of the. Um, I mean, is there a more cookie-cutter Republican than Mike Pence? I mean, you you help me. I mean, you know, to me, it looks exactly like he came from central casting. I mean, I think he's a good man, a decent man. I think he served the president well. Uh, I think he made the right decision on January 6th. I know a lot of you disagree with that, but I think he did exactly what he should have done on January 6th, and I told the man that. Uh, we met with uh, Mike Pence before he spoke to the um, to the group at the Baptist Temple, and um, there were 10 or 12 of us in that room. And um, and I told him, I said, there's nobody in this room, because I know who's in the room. I said, there's nobody in this room more sympathetic and believing in America first than I am. But I think the the only decision, the only choice that you were left with was the choice once the state certified was to confirm the certification. As much as Donald Trump didn't like it, as much as I didn't like it, as much as a lot of the millions and millions and millions of Trump supporters didn't like it, the, the hand you were dealt and the hand you had to play, you played it the way you should have played it. Um, but there's no way in the world I think Mike Pence has a chance to win the nomination because, once again, he's expressed a willingness to try and uh, kind of understand the establishment. Guys, this is a – and I think Newt's all over this. I mean, I'll give Speaker Gingrich a lot of credit. I think he is very, very um, direct and matter-of-fact in saying this is about – and I think January 6th and the hearings – uh, kind of um, they think they're basically driving a wedge between Trump and the Trump voter. I mean, they've tried that since Trump shows up, right? You've got this crazy, larger-than-life political figure 
and you've got this this universe of voters who feel disenfranchised and they connect it in some weird uh, bizarre way that there is this um that this loyalty that both have with one another and they've tried they being the establishment the elites have tried to drive a wedge between that relationship and i argue and i think i've argued fairly effectively for a few years that every time you try that you intensify that loyalty the january 6th commission has convinced nobody that trump incited an insurrection you believed he did before and you believe he did after you don't believe he did before and you don't believe he did after and in the poll question the only poll question i've seen that matters to me is 62% of Americans believe Donald Trump largely led to the events of January 6th. Today, that number is 58. And I think that number has gone from 62 to 58, not because of what Trump's done, but because it's obvious how much they're out to, and I'll use a very simple term here, out to get him. How to get, you just wipe the slate clean of the Trump presidency to, to basically uh, obliterate any reckoning or any, any recognizing of what his accomplishments were, and I mean, he'll be the guy forever remembered as one who put our democracy in, in danger, in peril. And that's a bizarre argument to make, but that's the argument they make. But but once again, if you're an elite establishment and, and you don't circulate in a universe of people, you don't try to understand, and that's the great failure of the elites. That's the great failure of the establishment. I, I'm being a bit re, you know retro here, but the day Trump gets elected in 16, the only thing, the only option on the table for an elite establishment member of either party is to look in the mirror that morning and say, how in God's name did we get here? How in the world did we get to a place where people thought Donald Trump made the most sense to be president? They didn't do that. They went down the road of Russia collusion. They went down the road of just all sorts of crazy and bizarre arguments to once again refuse to accept what what the people said. I mean, the people spoke loudly and clearly. The only person that I heard mention that in a respectful way was James Carville. I mean, Carville basically said, the world changed tonight. I mean, the world, you know, you like it or not. Uh, ain't the way we want things to be. And, I, and, and praise God, I was Hillary Clinton was the president. And that's how he said it. Too, but I mean, right? that's how he said it. But he said, well, change it not. And I mean, it, it, this guy did not run saying I'm a reconciled deficit. This guy did not run saying I'm bringing the country together. This guy, this guy said, you know, America's broke. We're going to try to fix it. Make America great again. He did not miss words. And, and, but they didn't do that. I mean, they, instead, they, they doubled down. They tripled down. They quadrupled down. And I think they've hurt themselves. And I think the loyalty that a certain universe, I don't know how big that university is, but the loyalty that a certain university, the American electorate have for this one candidate is unlike any I've ever seen in the history of mankind. And I don't think Trump did that. I think they did it. I think by doubling, tripling, quadrupling down, um, that they demonstrated their unwillingness to accept the will of the people they are the ones that call the shots. They are the run, ones that make the rules. They are the ones that run the games, and we better get back in line. And we have refused up until now to get back in line. So when you look at the intensity, when you look at the polling, yeah, I mean, Trump's a larger-than-life political blunt instrument. But the majority of that is a reaction to what I'll call the, the, the opposition forces trying to drive a wedge between this unique political candidate and this movement 
that that I believe now is just I mean it's it's unavoidable. I mean it's in a it's it's here and it ain't going anywhere. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Oh, great show as always. Uh, I, I I couldn't believe uh, your analysis of uh, NASCAR. But a little bit of airflow tricks underneath the car can uh, make a big difference in how a car handles at high speed. But uh, they, uh, I, on, on to the political topic, I, I think of some uh, a great many of these people, it's almost as if they've been vaccinated or inoculated against common sense. And they are want, wanting, they're just... Uh, crazy with uh hate for trump and everything he's associated with because um he he represents something that they that is just unbelievably strange and antagonistic to their whole uh world view but the thing that concerns me most is the uh lack of uh energy in uh people like uh kevin mccarthy and uh, even uh, the pundit uh, Andy Andy McCarthy, uh, they, they, what are we going to do to neutralize this this uh, push and to stop these uh, crazy people? I can just say crazy people from destroying our country if we do uh, get control of part of the Congress. That's interesting. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Yeah, you got to govern. Yeah, you know, what do you do? I mean, all this energy, uh, you know, unleashed on the political system, they're still, and I, and I think that's where DeSantis has probably separated and impressed. That's right. Um, you know, you, you got this um, wokeness and political correctness, and he has politically dealt with it. You know, what has he done to Disney, the, the Reedy Creek Development Initiative? I mean, it's gone. It doesn't exist any longer. Um, I mean, he's, he's, been, uh, he's been Trump enough. But he's been very policy oriented, and a lot of people, including myself, wonder how much attention Trump gives to true policy. You know, what what is my responsibility to govern? I mean, I think Trump gets it. I think he understands it. But does he is he laser focused? And it seems DeSantis at times can be very, very laser focused. Let's go to the phone. Here's Jim in Florence. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, guys. So, uh, can we get, let's go to South Carolina a little bit and talk about the governor's race? I, I think Henry is vulnerable to a degree, um, but Joe Cunningham just, I, I don't know if he's playing to the Twitter bots and just wants to go further and further left, but why, why is Joe Cunningham not coming back to the center and he's taking this hard left stance on abortion? That's all he talks about. I don't think that plays well necessarily in South Carolina. You know, I, Henry likes that, like he did this fantastic job with COVID when he sent sled agents to, you know, get people off boats and on, on the river. I, um, I don't think Henry did anything great with COVID. I think he messed it up, to be honest with you. Um, so why, when Cunningham really has a chance, why is he not taking that bull by the horns, or is it just a money grab for him? Thank you. I would imagine, I mean, Joe's probably playing the, uh, the notoriety card. How can I become a, a more noted politician? Uh, I've told Reb before, um, Swalling or Swalwell, Sw- Eric Swalwell. I mean, he's now referred to as former presidential candidate. I mean, never had a chance to win. Guys, this is a plus eight state in normal political times. It's probably plus 10 or 11 right now. When you look at generic Republican, generic Democrat, there's no way Joe Cunningham. I think Joe wants to have a little fun with Henry. The one thing Henry's got that very few establishment Republicans have is Trump's endorsement. 
I mean, you really go back to this. Um, I would argue that Catherine Templeton uh, may be the governor today if Henry McMaster doesn't get the endorsement of of Trump. But but Henry played it smart. I mean, give him credit. Henry is a an establishment Republican. He's been around a long, long, long time. Um, but Henry, for whatever reason, decided to stick his um or to basically stake his name and his political future on Donald Trump, and it paid off. And um, so when you look at Henry through the I don't know the the prism of a of an establishment Republican, yeah, I mean I think Henry is an establishment Republican. I think in quiet circles Henry would probably admit that he he's an establishment Republican. But Henry got the endorsement of Donald Trump, and I just don't think I mean once again who's going to run against Henry in a primary? I mean John Warren considered it, a couple of others thought about it, but that Trump endorsement. Had Henry McMaster not had the endorsement of Donald Trump and the threat of Trump coming to South Carolina on his behalf, Henry would have probably had some primary opposition, but he had that in his back pocket. And I think Joe's just trying to be, he's trying to elevate his stature. Um, I do believe this. I think Nancy Mace's voting proves to me that the first place to turn blue in South Carolina is going to be Charleston. I think Charleston will be a reliable Democrat um, congressional seat sooner than later. Um, I, I was at Pauly's Island all weekend. Every time I walk into the fresh market, I want to yell MAGA. <laughs> and, and when I leave there, I want to go to vote for Trump. I mean, I just have this burning desire oh, to funny. go vote for Donald Trump. I mean, I do. Because uh, everybody there's got their Patagonia vest on. They're driving their Audi or, or their BMW. They're wearing um, a mask, normally a mask. So what are you doing? They got there? the window cracked. I go to get a guy. They got good burgers. They got okay. real good burgers. They're a hundred dollars each, but they're good burgers. <laughs> but when I go to Fresh Market at Paulie's, I do. I just have this burning desire, and I got this Texas Longhorn um, shirt. I cut the sleeves off. I got it for a dollar ninety nine at one of these, you know, uh, racks outside of of a store. You know, buy one get one, buy one get the rack free or whatever. And I found me a down. I've cut the sleeves out. So when I walk in, I just feel like sneaking up behind the lady with the poodle and the um, and the, the Patagonia vest and the mask on. She's checking out the organic strawberries. I just want to say, MAGA! MAGA! I mean, I just want to run around the entire place yelling, MAGA, MAGA, MAGA. And when I leave there, I have this burning desire, burning desire to stop by Sonic and then go vote for Donald Trump to get that, ah, to get that ickiness off of me. Take a break. <laughs> Take funny. a break back in just a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. So it sounded like you said Charleston may be toss-up blue. Well, I mean, Joe Cunningham won the congressional seat a couple of terms True. ago. He sure. Did. I mean, I, well, I mean, the, the Republican Party is losing the white, affluent, educated voter. Nowhere in uh, South Carolina represents the white, affluent, educated voter more than Charleston. I mean, I don't know the makeup of Mount Pleasant and Charleston, and I don't know where, where the district lines are, but I do know this. The Republican Party is growing with the working class. It's shrinking with the affluent, white, educated voter. And Charleston has a, a fairly affluent, fairly educated, and largely white demographic. Uh, so in the Republican primary now, I'm talking about the Republican yeah, so, so, so yeah, I mean, if, if one place is going to, in other words, the, if the fresh market in Pauly's Island makes me nauseous, I can't imagine <laughs> what the fresh market in, in Mount Pleasant or Charleston would make me feel like. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning, sir. Breeze can tell you better than I can. Yeah, probably so. It'll make you feel like punching them in the throat, kid. That's what it makes <laughs> I mean, really, this is a communist hell territory, South New Jersey, 
Uh, they're turning, you know, again, you know, yeah, you like to think that a good bit of them think like we do, but unfortunately, um, as of right now, it just seems to me that, uh, that Mount Pleasant and Charleston, they're gone. They're nothing, there's nothing Southern about either one of those, these cities here. Um, they really are. And even though the mayors may be from down here, they've been bought and paid for by the, the, the rich, white, elitist, educated uh, people with the money. So yeah, yeah, they have no no regard for the working the working class whatsoever. What I wanted to ask you, so Ken, I understand uh, supply and all that, and supply and demand. But why do you think gas prices are going down? Um, is it because of uh, an economic slowdown or what? But I'll tell you, that Mount Pleasant is four fourteen for a gallon of gas. At Lake City yesterday, I mean three yeah four fourteen. At Lake City yesterday, it was uh, 375, and at the Exxon right there um, um, off Alligator Road, uh, it was 350 cash and everything. So, why do you think these prices are going up? Do you think? I guess it has to be Joe Biden's policies. But why do you think it? Is? <laughs> well, I mean, the economy slowed down. I mean, the economy is, is. I mean, I think we're in a recession. And, and, and prices decreased during the recession. I think in, in driving, we've seen demand destruction. People aren't driving as many miles as they were. So, um, and I think a lot of this is speculative. I mean, the energy market doesn't work on, on real time. I mean, people speculate about what it's going to be like in 30 days or 60 days or 90 days. And I think people are now beginning to um, see that at some point in time, people change their driving habits. They just don't drive as much. They don't spend as much. And um, so I think that's a reflection. The Biden would say, you know, the strategic petroleum reserve and untapping some of that. I, 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 you know, I don't buy that for a second. I just think it's all about, you know, the tendencies, the the proclivities of, of, um, of consumers. And consumers just seem to not be driving as much right now. Therefore, you're seeing a decline in. And maybe, I mean, maybe the Saudi is increasing production. Um, help, you know, the what I call supply and demand metric of the marketplace, but, um, no breeze. I just think we're, we're in a recession. And when you get in a recession, people make adjustments and they have to, because they don't have as much money. And I think inflation has caused, um, this recession. Thank you, breeze. Appreciate it. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think when you inflation, uh, w- when you macroeconomically stimulate, <laughs> there, there you go. You Monday, <laughs> your Monday morning phrase, when you macroeconomically stimulate, you create inflationary pressures. That inflationary pressures causes you to be poorer, and you begin to make decisions based on um, less money. And I think when you go buy a bag of groceries that's forty bucks, you can you know go buy somewhere else. And but when that forty dollars turns into sixty, that fill up goes from sixty to hundred. I mean, you make changes, and and it, most people do. Maybe not the affluent, um, well-to-do that frequent the fresh markets along our coast, but the majority of people have to make decisions and. I just don't think we're driving as much. I'll try to check that uh, during the hard break time. Another, another one of those trips to the grocery store yesterday for me, and I know everybody's experiencing it, but you know I expected it to be a forty to fifty dollar trip, seventy four. Yeah, my wife and I ate breakfast and we, we like forty two dollars, and we like start laughing like forty two dollars for breakfast, and it's not. I mean, it's not a dive, but it's certainly it in a white tablecloth um, sort of place. Do we have another call? Okay, I'm sorry. I thought uh, we had another. Yeah, they dropped uh, somebody from uh, Liberty's mom. Yep. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, wanted to call in. Please call back because I want to know what you folks have have going on. Um, try to allow these groups to update you, the listeners, on what sort of opportunities there are. I will be in, um, I think, in Hartsville Thursday. 
addressing a group. If I'm not mistaken, former Speaker Jay Lucas will be there. Jay's the one that asked me to come over and address the Darlington County uh, Republican Party has what they call a summer uh, slam or a summer blast or a summer party. They asked me to come over and speak. So Thursday night, if you're over in the Hartsville area, Darlington County, um, that's a Springsteen song. Probably charge you a hundred bucks to sing that, um, or to listen to it, download it. I've got an update on that. I've got a bit of an update on, um, on someone who tried to buy tickets at the, uh, uh, the Greensboro concert. Okay. And, um, did I send you that email or not? I don't think I did. Or did I? Uh, I think you did. Okay. Yeah, I think did. I did. 843-661-0937 is our number. We'll take a break. Hard break. Top of the hour. Be back in just a few. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. We'll play a hypothetical. Let's leave the world of presidential politics for just a second and talk about the other things government sucks at. <laughs> and the other, the other thing government makes life so complicated and difficult. I tell you, I spend a lot of time at the south end. It's not Garden City and Surfside. I actually spend a lot of time at, at Litchfield and Pauly's Island. Um, uh, I've got a buddy of mine in the real estate business down there, and it's gotten crowded and more, more crowded and more crowded and more crowded. I mean, the beach has always been a crowded place during the summer, but Pauly's and Litchfield were a little bit removed of that. But I told my buddy a few weeks back, I said, uh, man, it's getting crowd, more crowded down here. And, and he said, it's so funny. He says, they found it. I said, who is they? He said, all those people from New York and New Jersey, they found it. And um, they're buying up everything there is down there. And Breeze makes an interesting observation when he says the coast of South Carolina is losing its southern feel. I mean, it really is because uh, the fresh market, I'm probably the only truck. I know I'm the only truck because everybody else is a Volvo or, a, you know, uh, um, an Audi or a, or a BMW. And, uh, and the majority don't have South Carolina tags especially during uh, the summer. Uh, but, but this is an interesting observation. And I want to get, get kind of your take and maybe some of our listeners, because I talk extensively about the punitive nature of government. I mean, and I believe that. I think government has intentionally become unbelievably punitive. Um, it's not a give and take relationship. It's a take relationship. I mean, you give and the government takes. <laughs> we talked last week a little bit about the average retiree uh, in the public sector is 16 years younger than in the private. Um, that's going to come back to haunt us one day. I don't know when, and I don't know how, and I don't know where. might be like Sri Lanka, you know, when, I, when, when the people in the private sector realize that they're funding the retirees in the public sector and the people they're funding are retiring 16 years y- uh, earlier than they are. But, but I, I ran across a person uh, in uh, Pauly's Island, and here's the story, and I want to get your take on this. Um, her grandfather bought two lots in Litchfield in 1973 and built a home. Her father inherited uh, the home and lot, built another home in 1995. So the grandfather buys two lots in 1973. He builds a home. Um, the father builds another home in 1995 on the lot they had left over. She is... Um, not a wealthy lady, has never made a lot of money. She's done okay, and she says, but now she's retired, and her retirement income is less than the taxes on those two properties that her family owns. She's a, she's a, uh, she's a uh, single child. I mean, she's the only child of the grandfather, the only granddaughter of the grandfather who bought the lots in 1973. The father built the other house in 95, and now she's desperate. I mean, she doesn't know what to do. Here's the concerning part. 
And I'm going to incriminate a couple of my friends here because I got business buddies and we text about business. And I recounted that story to them. And one, with, without batting an eye, said she needs rental income. And it's a little bit like we, we've gotten to a place now where the government doesn't need to do anything wrong. It's not the government's fault taxes are so damn high. It's her fault. I mean, she needs to rent the house, right? I mean, her grandfather made a business decision in 1973. Uh, the price appreciated. Her father made one, what, nearly 30 years ago in 1995. And now she ends up not with tremendous assets, but with a liability because she likes going to the beach. They're her family's heirlooms, so to speak. But the government basically makes it so she can't afford without retirement income. But it's just so interesting how easily my friend said, well, I mean, it's easy. I mean, he never said, damn the government. You know, <laughs> right. while well, the government, the really, the taxes high. are that high? Uh, no, he says, well, she just needs to have rental income. And the relationship we have the government today is not a give and take. It is a take and a take and a take and a take, and you better give and you better give and you better give. And you don't have a choice in the deal. No, and this lady is just, I mean, she's beside herself. She doesn't know what to do. I mean, she doesn't make enough money to have two properties at Litchfield. She just, she's never made enough money to have two properties at Litchfield. But because of government taxation, she's going to have to divest herself of something her grandfather bought in 1973 and her father improved upon in 1995. And most of us seem to be okay with that. And, you know, my, my response to my friend is this group text. And my response was, I am now sure that the hinges on the casket in Monticello are made of titanium. <laughs> I mean, that, that, there is no question in my mind now that the casket is made of titanium, maybe lead, and the hinges are made of titanium because we, the people, have become so comfortable with that being the reality. I mean, we're, we're just kind of, um, well, I mean, she just needs to get rental income. I mean, she's got herself in a fix. It's almost like we're suggesting that she's been a bit irresponsible. You need to find a That's tenant, man. That's crazy. You, I mean, in this family and, and business. And you hear the same story about family farms. Sure. I mean, it's over and over, but, but, okay, but government does what government does, but we are so reluctant, maybe afraid. I mean, I would imagine it's probably fear. The majority of us are afraid to contradict government. We just don't want any they problem. Have the power. So, so we've been conditioned to believe that the problem is the lady needs to rent the property. You know, her family owns valuable property because her grandfather made a wise business decision. But she's not wealthy, and now she's got to make some decisions based on the government taxation and, and, and why. I mean, that, that, the bizarre, and, and once again, that's unfortunate. But what is even more unfortunate is how many people just basically, I mean, their, their first reaction is she's got a problem. Here's what she could do. There is never a mention of, that's sad, man. I mean, that sucks. The government really I mean, that, that's the destructive force of government. I mean, we call it the heavy hand of government. No, it's not the heavy hand of government. That The destructive force of government is making a lady who inherited two pieces of property from her loved ones. I mean, do you think her, I mean, so, so her grandfather uh, made these decisions. All of a sudden, she's got to, I mean, imagine there's a phone in heaven. And she calls her grandfather and says, hey, granddaddy, remember those two um, lots you made a real smart? I got to sell one. Or I got to let people live in the house every week this summer to pay the taxes. And, and we become so, we've normalized that in, in a way that we should be utterly ashamed of ourselves for allowing that to be 
our, our normal and reactive response. Let's go to the phone. Neil in Sumter listening to WDXY. Hi, Neil. Hey, good morning. I uh, apologize. I'm driving. Uh, I don't know if you were ready to do kind of a recap for the uh, the saga of Bruce in Greensboro tickets. Yeah, give me the uh, update. But, I got your email. So, so what is yeah. the story? So I got in there. Um, there are three different levels, uh, or there were for this sale of, of Ticketmaster, and I, I am just a like a premium. And then there was platinum, and there was something above that. So when I logged in, it said two thousand plus in the queue in front of you, which I believe is the highest number they will show. So it showed 2,000-plus purchasers ahead of me. And when you think about Greensboro Coliseum, you think, ah, what's the seat, 20,000 people? So if everybody's buying four, you know, at a minimum, that's 8,000 tickets probably purchased, being purchased ahead of me. Um, but it, it sat at 2,000 for a while, and then it started ticking down enough to pique my interest. And actually, I uh, called back, but you'd already taken off. Uh, and it did finally let me in uh, about 20 to 25 minutes into the sale. Uh, I was able to click on, I think, one floor seat was 300 and some, but there were no groupings. Um, and the only place uh, that if we, if we had decided to, to go forward with, the only place where I could have gotten four tickets together was behind the stage. It looks like he's going to do a 360 stage at one end. And behind in the upper deck, it looked like there were a few spots where you could get four people. And I think I did see tickets as low as 125. Uh, and my guess, uh, I didn't go to the purchase on it. My guess is the tickets and fees and everything they'll be pushing about 160. But so, but Neil, the good bad, seat, the the good seats are where everybody's losing their mind. Is that fair to say? Oh, probably. Yeah, I have no idea what the what the good seat. Like I said, the one four seat I was able to click on was about 325. So it had not whatever whatever happened up in Philly with them driving up into the thousands wasn't visible to me at that point. But uh, I don't know. It may it may have happened earlier in that sale. So gotcha. Uh, I, you know, I think they've got algorithms and things that that maybe without you know with just a few people seeing uh, their anecdotal evidence of hey, I saw a seat for three thousand. I, I don't know if you'd ever find out from Ticketmaster or Live Nations or Bruce Springsteen what the actual um, actual ticketed costs of those tickets are. You know, it's not like they're paper tickets anymore. They're electronic. Electronics are a lot easier to change than paper. That's interesting. So. Th- thank you, Neil. Appreciate it, man. I appreciate you, Neil, and I trade uh, emails. And uh, he actually kind of went to bat for me to see if he could help me out in Greensboro. Um, not the case. Wow. And you got to imagine, because you're talking about Madison Square Garden, there's going to be a much higher demand in New York City than in Greensboro, North Carolina. Well, I mean, I've kind of given up. I mean, I, I've resided the fact that I just, I'm not going to go see me. Uh, I mean, I've not, d- dynamic scoring freaks me out now. Um, the government and dynamic scoring both <laughs> suck. As far as I'm concerned, a lady in, um, lady in Litchfield's got to sell her house or rent her house that her grandfather left her and somebody's trying to pay four grand. Um, well, I will say this. Um, and, and somebody texted me, might have been you, or somebody texted me Friday and said, well, the Stones have done something similar to this. I don't think they did dynamic pricing, but there was some aftermarket. They had a bit of a dust-up, uh, and the Stones were found. Uh, they took a hit. They took a little ding. Their reputation took a little ding for being complicit with aftermarket vending and you know some of the um, exorbitant fees that go along with it. But but I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna defend the Stones for a second, and and I'm a Bruce sympathizer. The Stones have not spent a musical life singing about blue collar factory workers or um, giving an anti-capitalist rant about once a concert. I mean, I've never heard the Stones talk about blue collar factory workers. I've never had this, heard the Stones talk about you know rich man getting thin 
uh, you know, banker getting fat, rich man. I mean, I've never heard the Stones sing. I mean, it's brown sugar and starting me up and all these other sorts of things. So I believe the Stones get a little bit of cover here. I mean, they've not professed to be the um, the voice of the working man, the voice of the factory right. worker. They're just a rock and roll band. Yeah, so, so I put something on Facebook, and I said, when Springsteen does his concert in Madison Square Garden, and he goes on this anti-banker, anti-Wall Street rant, he will have the most captive audience he's ever had because the only people that can afford that show are probably working at Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan. So so good luck. And um, and once again, tramps like us will be stuck to um to watch it on YouTube, I would imagine. I'm disappointed. I mean, I'm terribly disappointed. Not, not, I mean, I guess I'm disappointed in Bruce and Ticketmaster and the whole shenanigan. But uh, it goes back to the Gordon Gecko line, and I don't know the answer to this, and you don't know the answer to this either. Um, how many boats is enough to ski behind? I mean, when is enough enough? I don't know. I believe in capitalism as much as anybody does, and I think a singer has a right to squeeze every dollar out of a tour and concert and album that he can. Um, but I think you're a bit hypocritical when you profess to be a champion of the very people who are trying to go see your show and can't. I mean, I, I just think there's something wrong with that. And I think Garth Brooks, I was told, don't know this to be true, that when Garth realized how much demand there was in Charlotte for his concert, he tried to figure out a way to do another show to keep the ticket prices down so regular people, and I don't know what a regular person is. I mean, at times I feel real regular. At times I feel irregular, a little bit on the high end and bottom end. Um, I mean, when you eat what you kill, you sometimes eat chicken, sometimes eat feathers, uh, depending on what year it is and what month of the year it is. But I, I just think that that the hypocrisy, once again, I didn't say the criminality. And, you know, I, there is no laws being broken that I'm aware of. But I think to institute a dynamic pricing model uh, with a concert by a guy who is historically professed to be, you know, the voice of the working man and the factory worker, I, th- I just think that's that's hard to square up as far as I'm as concerned. As if you didn't believe him when he did the Jeep ad and told you what he really thought of you, <laughs> now you kind of know. Well, you do. I mean, and you take it for what it is. And, um, you know, I want it to work itself out. I, I, you know, Friday I have a chance to go on the uh, the website and or Ticketmaster's website and try to buy tickets for, for Madison Square Garden. And, um, you know, I got a buddy who got some in Greensboro, um, and he said he paid 60 bucks each. And I said, where are they? He said, they're up there. He said, you'll be closer to the stage at your house <laughs> than I will in the arena. But he's, he's younger, doesn't have any money, and he wanted to go. And, and uh, he got he and I think three tickets for 180 plus the Ticketmaster processing fee cost him another maybe 20 bucks a ticket or 25 bucks a ticket. But he's like in the, the last three rows of the upper bowl and – I mean that that's uh that's a haul from there to the uh, to the stage. He even got into the arena. Yeah, uh, he kind of won the lottery. Yeah, you're right. Let's go to the phone. Boudreaux in Orangeburg, listening to WTQS. Hello, Boudreaux. Good morning, there, uh, Ken. You say sometimes you feel a little irregular. I found some prune juice every now and then to help that. But when I tuned in a while ago, you was talking about the government and how people. They, they tolerate the abuse of the government. And here recently, I uh, this past in the, over the past week, I've been reading First uh, Samuel there in the good book. Mm-hmm. And uh, when the people of Israel went to Samuel, the prophet, and said, we want a king like everybody else got, uh, God instructed Samuel to let him know what a king would do. And he pretty much told him, hey, he's going to take your servants. He's going to take your land for himself. He's going Basically, he's going to abuse his power. You know, you're going to regret it. And the people said, we don't care. 
We want a king. We want a king. And I, so I think that that's just a, a human nature flaw. They, they're just blind. They just follow blindly. And they've been doing it since uh, Saul become uh, king of Israel. We're way back in there. So it's just, it's just people. And they're not all of us are that way. And, uh, but, I mean, I, I just, when you said they made that statement, it popped in my head because I just read it last week. And I thought, well, we just, we don't care. When I say we, most people just give us a government, somebody we can, we can blame and, 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 uh, you know, let them handle the blunt of stuff. And if we, if we take a beating for it, well, then that's just the, the price of doing business. And it's unfortunate that it's that way, but I think it is. Thank you, Boudreaux. Appreciate it. You know, when you wonder why there's been so much energy invested in, in keeping everyone propagandized, and I do believe uh, that the response of my friend, and my friend's a buddy of mine, I, mean, I love him to death, but, but and his response didn't surprise me. It didn't surprise me at all. You know, a lady gets just some rental income. I mean, she's got a problem. You know, her grandfather built a house in 73, bought a lot, bought two lots, built one house, kept the other lot. The father builds one in 95 on the adjacent lots. So all of a sudden, they've got an enormous amount of real estate uh, because they made a real prudent decision in their lives. Um, she says that it's always been a struggle to pay the taxes, but while she was working, she could do it. Now she's gotten a little older, and, and she wants to retire, and her taxes on those two properties she doesn't live in either but the taxes on those two properties exceed her income let me say that again you don't talk about 28 percent of income it exceeds the taxes on those two properties are more than her entire retirement income and and it just leave when there's so much energy invested in propagandizing our society um, you kind of got to understand I mean, why. Why have we been willing to be so propagandized? And 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 when these systems that that are in place, and you can say they put them in place, and I can say no, they put them in place. But they're designed to exploit and oppress rather than to uplift and allow us to thrive. And I think of Sri Lanka. I don't know how many of you've kept up with what's going on in in Sri Lanka. It is heaven on earth as far as I'm concerned. Now, if you're the, the president, it's not. If you're someone who has instituted these propagandizing efforts, in other words, Sri Lanka sold their soul to green energy. And they allow the Davos man to say, hey, we're going to make your country a, a beacon of hope and opportunity. And they, they outlawed chemical fertilizer. And now there is no food. And, and you know, the, the Davos man gave the president of Sri Lanka, former president, he fleed the, the country now. I mean, he's the hell out of there. Um, because once again, uh, the propagandizing has led to an exploitation and the exploitation has led to an eventual realization. And the people say, we're hungry and we hear that you signed a deal with Davos. Uh, well, how many of us believe, how many people in Sri Lanka, when, when the president signed that deal with Davos, the World Economic Forum, to disallow, you know, fertil- uh, chemical, chemical based fertilizer, uh, <laughs> and now they don't have any food. I mean, production of food's down 35, 40%. Well, I mean, but once again, why do you even allow that? Why did someone on the in that moment not say, whoa, 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 you can't disallow chemical-based fertilizer. We'll be hungry. I mean, the country won't be able to produce the food necessary. But but once again, we were so interested in being celebrated by, by the wokeism of Davos and the Davos man of the World Economic Forum. And, and America is so suspect to that. I mean, we are so inclined to be propagandized. And once again, the government is not there to help you thrive and prosper. 
the government has turned into something that is very oppressive and very punitive in nature. And if you don't believe it, ask the lady who inherited the property in Litchfield and now has got to make a major financial decision, not because she made a mistake, not because she's made bad investments, but the government says because you made those good decisions or a former family member made those good decisions, we want our share. We want our share and we want it now. Mm. Wow. And we're comfortable or a certain percentage of our country is very comfortable with that alignment that I would argue is a total misalignment. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Someone on the phone. Let's go there. It's Angela in Florence. Hello, Angela. Good morning. Hey, you're on the air. Hey, good morning. How are y'all this morning? We're good. How are you? I'm good. Oh, I need more than liberty today. It's a Monday at my house. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So my name is Angela Cooper, and I am the chapter chair for Florence County Moms for Liberty. And um, those of you who may not have heard of Moms for Liberty before, Moms for Liberty is a nationwide grassroots activist um, organization. We are a bipartisan organization. Um, that is dedicated to fighting for our children um, through also all levels of government. And we are starting with the school boards. Um, and so there are several seats up for re-election in Florence 1, Florence 3, and Florence 5. So if you... Um, are interested in helping our children, we would greatly appreciate it. Um, Our meeting, um, we have a meeting every month. It's the fourth Monday of every month at Western Sizzlin at 7 p.m. And so tonight we have our July meeting, um, and we are going to be going over the school board seats that are open um, and which ones, you know, who can run for what and that kind of stuff. So we've got to get our children protected. Angela, is there a website or an email or a Facebook page that people can keep up with what you're trying to do? Yes. Yes. We have, you can go to momsforliberty.org and find your chapter. Um, and you can look for us there and it'll take you to our website. You can search moms for Liberty dash Florence County on Facebook or you can email me at moms, the number four, Liberty Florence at gmail.com. Okay. Thank you for calling in. Good luck. And if we can ever help, You're let welcome. us know. Thank you so much. Y'all thank, have a great day. Thank you very much. I saw those folks at the Ellen Weaver, um, Kathy Manus debate, if I'm not mistaken. You had teachers on one side and moms for liberty on the other side. That's right. In this corner. Is the education, you know, organizations, and the other corner is the Moms for Liberty. It's kind of interesting because when you think about it, the construct of society, and I'm talking about education, media, I mean, civility and politeness are celebrated. I mean, they're revered. We're trained. We're taught the importance of civility, the importance uh, of, of politeness. Um, I, I, I think it's important to be unruly. I think it's important to be impolite. I think it's important to be disobedient. I think disobedient citizenry is an, an essential to a, a democracy or a representative some, republic. Some people, the establishment folks, would say that's what's wrong now. Well, I mean, but, right? but if you think about it, our entire, our systems of power and authority 
or predicated upon you being polite, you being well-behaved, you being um, civil. you got to stay in line, Rev. I mean, you'll get a chance but, to I mean, say— Wasn't that a big complaint for the people, that the Republicans that didn't like Trump? I mean, sure. some people said he was just—he was unruly. Yeah. Uh, and then he said things that a, a president or a politician shouldn't say. Well, I mean, you know, and, and, I, and I think we have given too much credence to—well, if I don't be biblical here— um, rendering into Caesar what is Caesar's, what is rightfully Caesar's. And I just think it's an interesting— um, argument to make about the the lady in Litchfield, and once again, she has no idea I'm talking about her on the radio. I don't know her name. I don't know what her math is. I don't. Have any, I'm not gonna say well, how much is it. You know, uh, no, I don't have any idea of that. But she kind of began telling the story, and it was a very interesting story to me. I never said I'm a former politician. I never said I host, host a radio show. I mean, I don't go there with people. They don't care less. I mean, they're they're enjoying themselves, and she had her dog with her, and you know, she just one thing. I'll tell you what happened. That there there's a guy that bought a lot. And he's building a home. And you tell him he's trying to do. I mean, it's, it's almost like he's a son of a gun and I like it. Because um, he's doing things that, um, having been in politics, I know he pushed the envelope. And he's probably got enough money to have a lawyer and all these other things. But we're standing at the access. And I said something about the house. And she kind of opened up and began down the road. And I, began, I said, well, that's, so your grandfather in 73. And what did y'all do with the other lot? And it leads to something else. And I just remember thinking, um, I mean, the, the lady is polite. She's civil. She's doing exactly. But but the systems that we have um, uh, allowed to exist in America. Well, let me let me ask you this, because okay. you're good at pointing out this situation, which some people may think it's unfair. It's an illustration of you know government out of control or whatever in a, in a larger sense. But we've pointed this out, so is there a solution? Yeah. Is there a fix? To not be polite, not be civil, and to be a bit unruly, of course. I mean, I think we're getting there. And I think we're expecting too much out of America first. You know, we talk about America first being an anti-globalist, anti-nationalist. It's really an anti-government sort of movement. It's, um, once again, I'm not saying go punch someone in the mouth. I'm not saying, you know, um, don't render unto Caesar what is rightfully Caesar's. But who gets to decide what is rightfully Caesar's? I think that's the big question. And and, and when, when the American people become so comfortable with articulating an opinion that, well, the lady just needs to go get some rental income. That leads me to believe, Rev, that these, these because I believe our entire American civilization, I think civilization in general, Western civilization in particular, is probably structured with preventing things like Sri Lanka. You know, you've got to get to the abyss. I mean, you've got to get to the edge of despair before we're willing to lash out at authority. And we're seeing it now. I mean, people do crazy things. People forget about civility and impoliteness or politeness when they get hungry, right? I mean, and in Sri Lanka, they didn't produce enough food for the country to consume. So all of a sudden, these um these structured elements within our society, and I'm talking about education, uh, political systems, our media, um, online information, censorship. You got an unruly or impolite opinion? You can't put that out there. I mean, you can't let someone say something as unruly as that. And I think society requires a certain amount of, of uh, I don't want to say criminality. That's certainly not what I'm insinuating. But I, I, I do believe um, that we've got to allow, or we, we, we need more people willing to stand firmly against government without fear of going to jail for the rest of their life. Um, Steve Bannon um, got, you know, found guilty of contempt of Congress. Um, 
uh, what if, what if, I mean, even I'm guilty of this. All of a sudden, Ban- Bannon went too far. Did he? I don't know. I mean, did Bannon go too far or not? Um, that's he's, an he's interesting. Being a bit unruly well, I mean, when he defies Congress's well, I mean, subpoena, but, but, right? Well, is he unruly or does he defy some of these structures, some of the civilizations or, or the, the the civilized structures that we've been told are, are the guardrails? Who who gets to put the guardrails? But see, if he's unruly or if he defies. What's happened? Well, I mean, he's going to jail. Sure, I mean, up to, I mean, he could. I mean, he won't go to jail, I doubt, but he could go to jail for, um, you know, two or three years. You don't I mean, think they'll they'll try. Well, they could put him in jail for thirty days. Um, but that's that's where we are, and it's not the Bannons of the world. I mean, Bannon's going to be rambunctious and unruly and and uh, uncivil and disobedient because that's in his DNA, and God bless him for that. The the problem is how many of us find Bannon to be, um. A bit out of kill. I mean, we can't allow that guy to do what it is he's trying to do. I think there was a day in America we celebrated when someone was courageous enough to stand against the U.S. Senate or stand against the U.S. Congress. But now all of a sudden, um, we, we, we got to be reverent and we got to be polite. We got to be decent and civil. Does the government deserve civility? Does the government deserve politeness? Does the government, once again, these these structures within our civilization have basically created robots that 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 follow the rules. But, uh, but doesn't it divide up on party lines? I mean, wasn't it okay when when protesters were uncivil during, say, the Kavanaugh hearings? Yeah, but yeah. remember they. But I don't the think Capitol? the fear of government is in party lines. I think you know the majority of people fear the government, and that's not what the Constitution. The Constitution is not there. I mean, I'm being repetitive. The Constitution is not there, never has been there, to protect the government from you. And somewhere down the road, via these organizations and these um these structures, I think that's the best word, the, the structure of education. Does education celebrate civility and politeness or unruliness? I mean, how will how will the educational historians remember Donald Trump? I mean, he's a pain in the ass. I mean, he wouldn't do anything he was supposed to do. Who says what Trump is supposed to do? The media, our, our political uh, systems. I mean, all of these celebrate, and I think it's very intentional. And this is where I, I mean, I am a full-fledged conspiracy theorist on this. I think conditioning the American people to conform has been by design and highly successful. And and to not conform is risky. It's risky they financially. Sure, you better believe it. They'll take your money. They'll take your reputation. Take your freedom if they can. They'll take your freedom. You better believe it. And and I just got to believe that when Jefferson sat down uh, with with, uh, Adams and a couple of others and drew the Declaration of Independence, they didn't have a punitive government in mind. They didn't say, hey, here's what we do when people don't do what the government tells them to do. I mean, I think those sorts of personalities historically in America have been celebrated. But, but not recently. I think modern, woke America, and I think we became woke a lot earlier than we admit we did. I mean, we didn't go down the road of transgenderism and all these other things, but we rewarded an obedience to government. I mean, the companies that obey government, the companies that contribute to government, the companies that get along with government, they're the most lucrative companies. If you're a business, I mean, they taught Apple a hard lesson, right? Remember, Apple didn't contribute. Apple kind of said, hey, we're going to walk to the beat of our own drum because that's who Steve Jobs is. And the government said, look, uh, you're, you're a big company, but you're not as big as we are. And we make the rules around here. So what did Apple end up doing? Lobbying the government. Hired a politically correct CEO. And, and you know, I mean, Apple's a big company with a lot of money. 
But Apple find it a lot more lucrative and a lot more easy to get along and go along. And I just think society in general, whether it's, whether it's corporate society or people, we, we have, I'll, I'll say this and then we'll take a break. We've given way more respect to government than it deserves. We've given far more of our money, uh, of our, our politeness, our dignity, our reverence to government than government ever deserved. And if Jefferson, Adams, Madison, Washington, and Franklin were alive today, they would lead the charge in an uprise against government. But, but the reason that I think um, Sri Lanka is so revealing is our entire civilization is structured around preventing scenes like that from ever happening. And they should happen and need to happen far more frequently than they do happen. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Stop rendering into Caesar what ain't rightfully Caesar's. Give him what he deserves, but don't give him all of your money. I don't know. I, I, I get real frustrated, and the story bothered me a lot. I mean, it really bothered well, me because I, don't like, I pro- don't like government at all. I, mean, I don't I, like property taxes at all. Well, I mean, look, we should I have mean, a, a flat tax. I mean, we should have an income tax or an economic transaction tax abolish the property tax. A lady that inherited property should not have to be made to sell, sell her property because the government says you owe me this much money. I mean, that just is you not never America. really I'm own anything. No, I mean, that's just not like America. This, and I don't like that. The, the lady all. is being punished because her grandfather made real prudent, smart business decisions, not because a competitor across the street and the, in the marketplace. No, the government says you owe us this money because we say the house is worth that much. The lady has no desire to sell it because it's a family, you know, it's something part of her family. But the government's going to end up probably forcing her to make that sort of de- – and we're comfortable with that. That's the problem I have. I mean, we're comfortable. We become so comfortable at accepting government at its face, and I just think we we got to do better than that. Let's go to the phone. Barry and Sherrall. Morning, Barry. Hey, good morning, guys. I uh, hope you all had a good weekend. Ken, here's my lineup on every day. Here's my lineup. 6 to 10, I got Ken R on 95.3. From 10 to 12, I got Steve Bannon. From 12 to 2, I got Alex Jones. Then I go back with Bannon again. So, listen, I'm all in, anti-government as far as controlling our lives. Ken, you kick it off in the morning local-wise. You keep us up to date on what the local politicians are trying to do to us. Then I go over to Steve, and, you know, he's persecuted every day for a sham trial January 6th with all Democrats on it because you can't call them other two Republicans. So he's just supposed to go along with what they say, what they say do. I, I, I'm with him on that. And then you got Alex. Yeah, you can think whatever you want of Alex Jones. He's been right more times than he's been wrong. So that's just that's just where we're at, guys. The only people that's going to take this country back is we the people, not the politicians. We need we the people to come together to take this country back, or we're not going to have a country. We're not going to have what we have now. We're not going to have Lynchfield Beach. We're not going to have that stuff. Taxes are going to be too high. You're going to have to sell everything, and that's exactly what they want us to do, depend on the government. So until we wake up as we the people, we're going down this road that I do not like, Ken. Y'all have a great week, man. Thank you, Barry. I wish I'd coined this phrase. I didn't. I'd love to take credit. Somebody said once, and I read the predatory ruling class. And I think that is so aptly spoken and so accurate. The predatory ruling class, those that have had, um, I mean, many have been elected, 
and others have um, been appointed and some have kind of worked through the ranks of government, the bureaucracies of government. They've reached a point where they have a, a pretty good bit of authority over how we live our lives and conduct our affairs and th- th- very predatory, very predatory and not looking out for your best interest, but rather um, ready, willing, and able to teach you a lesson when a lesson needs to be taught. Let's go to the phone. Here's Jamie. Got about a minute. Well, y'all moved on, but let's don't forget about um, Lois Lerner and Eric Holder. They were contempt of Congress, and nothing happened to them. Um, hey, Ken, can I say on the air I'm looking for a wood shop in the PD area? And somebody needs to give me a call. You just did. Give me your number. (laughs) Give them your number. 843-496-0820. Thank you, Jam, and good luck. Thank you, brother. Uh, Thank you very much. Yeah, Jam, looking for a wood shop if someone has one for rent in the PD. See, that's what you get for being a Prime member. (laughs) If Jam wasn't a Prime member, we would have hung up on him. But Jam's a Prime member, whether he knows it or not. He may be the first Prime member we've ever had. Here on Wake Up Carolina. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. Got a little trivia later in this last hour of the morning. Good song of the day there. Good song of the day there. Not a Bruce song on this Monday. (laughs) May not be a Bruce song on this Friday. Depends on how um, we we, we transition through the ballots of this week. What can we do to convince you that maybe now is the time? I think he's done about all he can. I don't think there's anything you can do. Nothing else we can add. I think he's done uh, about enough damage. (laughs) To the relationship that we previously had for me to um, call it quits, throw in the towel. Okay, back to the Sri Lanka situation. Okay. And, of course, you know, they're so far away and you see what's happening over there, but it doesn't really feel like it could happen here. Mm-hmm. But do you think there's any way that that, that 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 sort of uprising could take place How many in this people country? get hungry? Well, let me ask you a question. When you say, when I say, when I say render unto Caesars, what is Caesars? I mean, I, I'm cool with that. 
I mean, I am, uh, you know, a personal, I mean, I'll give, I'll give up a little bit of my freedom. I'll give up a little bit of my money. I'll give a little, little bit of my, um, the luxuries that I have. I mean, I believe in the common good. I believe in a civilized society. I believe in, in government. I don't hate government at every turn. Uh, government's kind of, it's a little bit like Springsteen. I mean, what are you trying to do, man? You're trying to make me hate you. I mean, is that the desire here? <laughs> so, so when government, and when I hear this story of this lady, and that's a real story. That's not, that's not the, once again, that's not the flight simulator. I mean, there's a real lady who had a grandfather. And in 1973, the grandfather um, made a prudent business decision. He buys two lots in Litchfield. He builds a house on one, holds on to the other. Um, her father and the grandfather's son builds one in 1995. Um, I would imagine that property's worth at least $3 million. I mean, it's on the ocean. I mean, it's, 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 uh, I, mean I know where it is. I, I know what the lady is talking about. She retires. She said it's always been a struggle since her father died to maintain the two properties. She can't do it any longer. She wants to retire. She's 71 years old and she can't afford to. I mean, she just, th these are, in other words, instead of these being, I um, mean, they're obviously, you know, um, assets in her life because she could sell them and, and take the money and go home, but they're important to her. They remind her of her grandfather and her father. But the government says, I don't care if they remind your grandfather or father, you owe us this much on taxes, and the tax bill on the two properties is more than the lady's income is. Is that rendering unto Caesars what is rightfully Caesars or not? And, and I think that's the question. It's not that I don't think the lady should have any tax bill. I mean, of course I don't buy that. I mean, I think we all owe it to... Um, a, a civilized and functioning society to pay our share, whatever that and share some people would, may would, or may not would be. Say, look, you know, she's she's inherited all this property, and uh, and you know they don't feel sorry for her because of that because well, she I mean, has property now that is worth a lot of money. Okay, but let's use a family farm as an example. So, so you inherit a farm from your father, and the farm's a thousand acres, and and all of a sudden the tax bill is this, and the upkeep is that. Um, I mean, the upkeep is the upkeep, and whether you make it productive or not, that's your business. I just think we've gotten to a point where we render far more unto Caesar than Caesar deserves, whether it's our freedom, whether it's our finance, whatever part of our lives is. And once again, believe it or not, I'm not one that wants to drown government in the bathtub. I mean, I struggle with this libertarian bias I have about government has no responsibilities and no rights and no, no, and our government has authority and government has rights and government has responsibilities. And we try to hash that out on Friday morning, you know, when Philip and Jay and, and Mike come in here and, you know, what is the responsibility? I, I just believe that we've created a society and we've, we basically, our education systems, our political systems, our media uh, the way we online communicate w with one another, I think we have subsequently propagandized our people into believing that, that we are not giving Caesar enough, that Caesar deserves a little more and a little more and a little more. And I think sooner or later, a group of us have to say, no, I mean, no, that's too much freedom. That's too much money. That's too much authority. And I think that's always been the yin and yang with representative republics and democracies throughout the world. Um, and I think Sri Lanka, when the president of Sri Lanka made a deal with the World Economic Forum and he agreed to outlaw chemical fertilizer and Sri Lanka's food production went down by about a third and all of a sudden the people are hungry. Well, I mean, hungry people get desperate. And, and that's why they stormed the presidential palace and they've stormed some of the other official governmental buildings of there. Can that happen here? Yes, absolutely it can. Will it? I don't know. Let's go to the phone. Sam in Darlington. Good morning, Sam. 
Hey, good morning, uh, Dave and Ken. I'm really enjoying the show this morning. I'm 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 passing through Darlington today, and so uh, I love to listen to you guys when I'm here. Thank you, Sam. Anyway, I've got three things three things I want to, uh, to 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 talk about. The first thing is I agree with you about the the Joe Gibbs racing uh, situation. Kind of crazy there. I, I wonder why they uh, didn't pick the other two cars too and take them to the R&D center, and we'll wait and see how that turns out. I also agree with you on Brett Bear. Boy, he really uh, let Lynn Cheney off the hook. I think he could have bore down on her a little harder. And then the third thing I sort of went into what I was mainly interested in uh, calling about, and that is I, I dislike government. I dislike government's overreach. I'm with you uh, there. However, I think you're being a little too hard on the government uh, when it comes to this lady. Um, you, you got a real, you're, you're, it seems to me you're taking the, the government tax side of things. Now, if the government is raising their rates, their tax rates, uh, you got an argument. But a lot of her problems is caused by the capitalistic system, the, the growth of the beach, the demand for the property. So, as you said, she, she's got property there that's worth almost $3 million. So, obviously, that's going to command at whatever the tax rates are uh, more taxes. So, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I hate to defend government, but uh, anyway, <laughs> I've really enjoyed your conversation. Thank you, Sam. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for passing that's through. And that's what listening to this show will do. Sometimes you find yourself defending government well, when you would never do that. The, 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 the host talks out both sides of his mouth, and if you're not careful, he'll convince you it's okay to talk out both sides of, of yours. I mean, it's a fundamental debate, and, and I want to go to the first. I had a text about 30 minutes ago, someone um, in the know at NASCAR uh, that I associate with, that sent me a, uh, a text saying that from what they understand, we're talking about the two Toyotas to get uh, the cars are impounded. They're on the way to the NASCAR headquarters. Um, Chase Elliott finished third, but he won the race because the, here I go with my racing language, ready? The 11 car and the 18 car. We call them by the numbers. Right, the number. Yeah, the 11 and 18. That's the FedEx Denny Hamlin car. And the, uh, is it M&Ms? I don't know who sponsored Kyle Busch yesterday. He's got... Uh, none of these companies sponsored the entire season any longer, but uh, the cars were impounded because they failed post-race inspection and the post-race inspection was centered around the front fascia area and a material or something there that wasn't supposed to be there. I got a friend in Charlotte more associated than I am and says the scuttlebutt around NASCAR world is that it gave them a significant downforce advantage. Whatever they did, um, those two cars who I think Joe Gibbs Racing is the, is the car owner, um, that it gave those two cars significant downforce advantage. And I'll just say this. Here I go with the numbers again. You ready? The five and nine don't get outrun like that much. I mean, they're, they're normally as fast or faster than anybody. They just couldn't keep up yesterday. And um, you just kind of thought that the two Toyotas hit on something and, you know, had a, a perfect package for the track and all that good stuff. But my buddy just texted me about thirty minutes, maybe forty minutes ago, and said that in the, in, in the in the garage and the in the Charlotte work uh, in the shops around Charlotte today that he's picking up scuttlebutt that whatever they did gave them a pretty serious downforce advantage. And if you're trying to go around a track at 180 miles an hour, being glued to the track is a lot more advantageous than not being uh, so glued to the track. I don't have any idea what what sort of material, what sort of arrangement. Did it was it a template failure? Uh, was it some sort of foreign material that was not supposed to be on the car? NASCAR's got this next gen car, and they're saying don't monkey around with the car. And apparently, Joe Gibbs Racing and the eleven and eighteen teams monkeyed around with the car, 
Um, and now Chase Elliott wins his, what, fourth race of the season despite finishing third uh, coming across the finish line. Um, Brett Bear let Liz Cheney off the hook yesterday, and that was disappointing to me. No question about it. Um, Bear had a chance to really push her on this, um, and, and basically not accuse her of anything, but make her defend how she is the ranking member, the first ranking member of a select committee that has ever been appointed by the by, uh, by, by the other team, the other side. The Democrats, in essence, said, um, you're the majority, excuse me, you're the chairman and you're the ranking member. And that's never, once again, never happened in the history of American politics until now. And, uh, you know, Trump kind of leads you down that road. Now I want to go back to what he argued about, you know, defending the government. Um, this is kind of a, this would be a great debate. And it's an interesting debate to have. Um, what does that house cost today to the government? I mean, the government taxes, for argument's sake, let's say it's $3 million worth of real estate. I don't have any idea what it's worth. But for argument's sake, let's say the, the land and improvements are worth $3 million. Got no idea what the assessed value is. Uh, the reassessments increase the value because the capitalist markets work and it's worth more money today than it was. Is it worth more to her? I mean, it is in a, in a, in a way. I mean, it, if it's on her balance sheet and it's an asset, instead of $100,000 in 1973, it's probably a million dollars in 2022. What about that home creates more expense for the government? I mean, it's the same piece of land. It's the same um, house. I, I guess the ladies painted and replaced the roof and maybe caulked around the windows to replace the windows. So she's had or her family's had to do some things, you know, to, to keep it up and maintain it. What about it costs the government more money today? Well, I know the answer. Health care is more expensive. You know, payroll is more expensive. Uh, the cost of building a road is more expensive. I get all that. I mean, I understand and accept all that. Sending money to Ukraine is more expensive. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, but we're talking about local government here. You're talking about ad valorem taxes well, that's true. and county government. That's they're, true. they're not funding Ukraine and they're not, you know, funding Social Security and Medicare. And, and that is a very interesting debate. That's a fair yep. debate. That, that is an absolute fair debate. How can we tax a home at the exact same value in 1973 as we do today and expect us to improve roads? To provide water lines and sewer lines. There you go. I mean, the infrastructure that that, that we uh, believe government is. What did an ambulance cost in 1973 and what does it cost today? And once again, I think the great debate is rendering unto Caesar what is rightfully Caesar's. What is that number? What is that percentage? What, What degree of my freedom do I owe Caesar? What degree of my income do I owe Caesar? What degree of my existence do I owe Caesar? And I think that is the perplexing, perpetual debate that we must have with one another. But but here's my argument, Sam. The educational systems in America, the political systems in America, um, the, the media in America have basically propagandized to the point where we don't have that debate. I mean, if I begin debating that, you know what I am? I'm one of them. I'm one of those fringy Republicans. I'm one of those conspiracy theorists. I'm one of those you better keep your eye on. I mean, you better deal with that guy a little bit differently. See, Eric Holder did the exact same thing as Steve Bannon, but Holder's not a menace to these structures. Bannon is. I mean, Bannon kind of runs roughshod over some of those. We got to teach Bannon a lesson. In other words, Eric Holder did exactly the same thing, contempt of Congress, but he's not a menace. I mean, we understand why Holder did it. He's wearing suits. He don't wear these these barber jackets. And I think we've been coached into believing that the way you progress as a society in 
the, the civility and, impl- and, and the politeness of which we conduct ourselves. And I just think that's farcical. I think that's nonsense. I think societies like ours must have impolite people. It must have unruly actors. It must be uncivil at times. I'm not defending January 6th, but I can tell you this, unless the, um, I wish I'd coin this, unless the predatory ruling class accept that they've overstepped their bounds, there's going to be more of these. It's going to be more frequent. You ain't seen the last of storming a government building if indeed this predatory ruling class does not accept the suggestion that maybe, just maybe, we're rendering more to Caesar than Caesar actually deserves. I mean, I don't disagree with what Sam said, and I think he makes a very valid point because I thought through that coming home last night. I mean, I began to think about the lady and her situation. I said, yeah, but it does cost more to build a road today. It does cost more to run water lines today. It does health care cost a lot more money today. So, so I would agree to some um, escalation, but, but what, is that, what is that percentage? Where is that number? And I think if we were unruly, impolite, and uncivil, the government would be very, um, very leery to go as far as indeed they've gone. But once again, they believe they have the luxury of propagandizing uh, to society. Um, in other words, these people will be aggravated, but they're not going to be uncivil. They're not going to be impolite. They won't like writing the check, but they'll write the check. They're not going to like giving up that percentage of their freedom, but they will because we've convinced them that condition and conformity is far more rewarding and advantageous than being a horse's ass. I mean, if you want to do that, that there, there's big trouble. You want to act that way? What, what, what did your parents say? You want to act stupid? I mean, my grandfather had a famous saying, if you're going to be stupid, you better be tough. I mean, he'd always say that to me, my brother, my, my father, my, my granddad would always, you, if son, if you're going to be stupid, you better be tough. And I think we basically uh, <laughs> almost immortalize that in the way we, we govern ourselves. If you want to be stupid, I mean, if the FBI looks at you, you want to be stupid, you better be tough. The CIA, you know, the, the DEA, well, whatever government agency I'm talking about. And I just don't think that's ever been the intent. I don't think government was designed by our founders to be punitive. I think it was designed to be complimentary and, and, and you know, empower and, 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 and help, you know, work through whatever issues. I just, for the life of me, I don't believe that Thomas Jefferson, I mean, if, if Jefferson were sitting on that um, public access with that lady yesterday, I, I think he would just, I think he would have melted. I would have said, what did we do? I mean, how did we allow you know, what we created in 1776 to turn into this. I think Jefferson and all of our founders understood that Caesar deserves a percentage, a percentage of your money, a percentage of your your, your freedom, a percentage of your existence. But this much? Have you ever really calculated how much the government controls your life? Have you ever really, for a second, uh, realized how many times you bump into government every day of your lives in a way that you never, ever imagined. I mean, I would argue you can't live 20 minutes of your life out and about without bumping into something that government put in place. Did, did it put it in place to empower you or to basically facilitate a kind of, kind of a power struggle between, you know, the individual and, and basically the heavy hand, which I call the manipulative force, of government. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone, then we'll take our break. Ashley in Poston's Corner. Hello, Ashley. Good morning, fellas. Good morning. Uh, great show as usual. Uh, you asked a question earlier, if what happened in Laos can happen here. 
I've been in agriculture in some form or fashion in the agriculture industry for 18 years. Um, I go and tell you, it's already happening through the EPA, through uh, Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack, through RMA, which controls all your insurance. It's already happening. Since Biden took over, they've done nothing but preach on climate change, uh, equities, RSGs, uh, the EPA starting to crack down on some things. And, you know, they've turned a blind eye on fertilizer being up 300 percent. So if you if, if you don't think we can be Laos, we already we're already transitioning there. They weaponized the EPA. They've weaponized the RMA. They're going to they're going to re- weaponize the FDA, too. Because they can't get it through Congress, they're going to try another way to do it. And I'll take it up there. Thank you, Ashley. Appreciate that. I do want to say before we take our break, um, I was the furthest thing from a conspiracy theorist. I mean, I've always been kind of a conservative Republican. I've always been libertarian-leaning. I mean, I was raised by a small businessman who didn't like the government, didn't think the government was there to help him, but rather to harm him. But I'm telling you, when I started doing this radio show, and it required multiple hours of day, uh, reading, researching, understanding. I'm not a dummy. I mean, I'm not, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer by any stretch, but I'm not a dummy nor a moron. And the more I read, the more I understand, the more I digest, the more I consume, the more conspiracy theorists I turn into. Take it for what it's worth. 843-661-0937. Back in just a minute. <laughs> you know, the answer to all this is the uh, is some version of the flat tax. I mean, uh, you yes. know, an economic transaction tax, some sort of, um, well, call it what you'd like, flat, fair, economic transaction, sales, nationalized sales tax, whatever. Um, but you're not going to get a lot of the government employees to go along with that because, once again, um, you're exposing yourself to economic cycles. When, when the when the collections are down, when the economy's in recession, as we are now, um, well, they've technically redefined a recession. I mean, yeah, all I I've that. ever heard, and I'm not an economist, but always heard and was taught and told that two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth equals a recession. Janet Yellen said, well, that's kind of the way it normally goes. Some but, people say. But if we grow at such a fast rate coming out of COVID, and then we have second or two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, it probably isn't a recession because it's just a, um, it's a reduction in economic growth, I think is what um, she said. Um, Janet Yellen is uh, got about as much business in that job really and truly as I do on the radio, but I'm on the radio and she's in that <laughs> job. So we share um, similarities there. No, but, but I go back to um, if you, if you implement a, uh, a government and the government has to work off of uh, the, the sales tax generated by a slow economy or a fast growing economy, the government's got, going to have to make some decisions. You know, when the, when the number, I mean, when the money gets rolling in, uh, they've got to cut. I mean, it's what we do as an economy. Private sector cuts when we enter tough times, recessionary uh, periods as we are in today. Uh, because we've already had one reported quarter of negative GDP growth. And odds are this next quarter is going to be negative GDP yeah, growth. Sure that's what they're setting up for. And that's technically a recession. Now, how deep and how severe, I don't have any idea. Uh, most of the people I talk to believe that the Fed will blink. And they'll probably even lower rates toward the end of this year. They'll freak out. Maybe one more raise. Remember um, three months ago, 90 days ago, the Fed was committed to getting inflation under control. Well, I mean, getting inflation under control is going to cause a recession. I mean, we kind of talked about that. 
Uh, the G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu Grip Theory said when, when the Fed begins raising rates into a declining economy, you're probably going to drive it into a recession, but you do address fundamentally the inflation issue in America today. But it doesn't feel like, uh, well, I think Wall Street paid somebody at the Fed a, a visit and said, hey, we can't live with another 20% correction in our stock prices, and um, you got to do something here. So some believe that the Fed will take its foot off of the, uh, I don't know, the, the throat of Wall Street, so to speak, and um, and they'll have a bit of a market run-up. But 23 and 24 are going to be terrible, terrible times to be investors in the American stock market. That's what I'm reading and hearing from some of these uh, so-called experts. Who knows? I think Reggie Armstrong says it better than anybody. I don't know. I mean, we theorize we, we make calculations, uh, we make assumptions, we build models, we base our opinion on those models, on the assumptions, on the calculations. But at the end of the day, the market kind of has its own mind. And I mean, it's just interesting to me how the market is waiting with bated breath, not on earnings. I mean, they do to some degree, but normally on what the Fed, what is Fed policy? It's not earnings or unemployment numbers anymore. What is the Fed going to do or not? Seems to be the biggest driver in whether the market goes off or the market goes down. Let's go to the vault. David in the PD. Hello, David. Hey, uh, just want to start out, Dave. Uh, Dave's Braves, uh, 10 of the next 13 games for the Braves are Phillies and Mets. Just letting you know that one, man. Uh, the woke green fantasy island, Sri Lanka. Uh, Ken, do you, ever, do you know anybody from Sri Lanka? I do not. I do. Uh, I tell you what, my buddy, back in the day, this is, this is, there's common sense working folk everywhere. Uh, what we call junk mail, he called free scratch paper. I mean, we used to laugh about this because we had 3M had this post-it notes and, and his, his whole thing was, they send you paper every day in the mail. All you have to do is just cut it up, and you can use it as a post-it note. And you know, we used to go to football games, and it was like, why do these people leave these cups just sitting here? All you have to do uh, after the game, I mean, all you have to do is just put them in hot water, and you have use of all this plastic. So I, I, I really – this whole America first, it's, it's everywhere, really, if you think about it, just common sense folk. But I was going to uh, – let's get to the real thing, most important thing, Springsteen. Uh, your man, that I, I, I can make a bet. Ken Ard went to the show in 1985, Carolina Coliseum. What was the ticket price back then, Ken? I think it was like $18. I mean, I thought about it. I can't remember it, but I, I want to say it was like 18 maybe 28 bucks, somewhere thereabouts. Okay, about 18 I'm going to brag on you, man, Springsteen. Uh, he's been around for a long time, I think – he he was at I know he was at Township Auditorium in '76. So you think about who was around in '76: uh, Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, the original Skinnerd, Eagles, Kiss. And Elvis was still alive. Elvis had the most expensive ticket back in those days, fifteen dollars, I think, and that equates about eighty-five dollars. So, and, and one thing, stay away. From Folks, stay away from the Springsteen because you get addicted to it, right, Ken? It gets and, in your blood. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit like it politics. It gets in your blood, and, and he does it 
any time you think about a ticket price for him, he's going. Most people do just one hour. He does three three hours. So you have to think about it like that. I think these algorithms got hit in there, but you have to figure out in your own common sense what a fair ticket price would be for this. Um, so if the Elvis ticket was fifteen bucks, it, it equates to about eighty five now. If Springsteen does a, a he does three more hours than that, so you multiply that. But I admire you for being a Springsteen fan for that reason. I'll leave you at that. Have Thank a good you. day. Thank you, David. And I don't think Bruce is – I mean, obviously, they're not breaking any laws, and, and you believe in supply and demand. I believe in supply and demand. The, the problem I have is the hypocrisy. I mean, if you're, if you're an uber-capitalist, tell me you're an uber-capitalist, but, but don't lecture to the country for 40 years about bankers and capitalism and, you know, the greedy rich guy on Wall Street and sing – um, uh, song after song after song about the working class factory worker. I mean, d- d- stop being a phony and a fraud. You have every right to be a capitalist. And I said earlier today, and I'll say it again, if Springsteen can make a million dollars a show, God bless him. I mean, if there's that much demand for his concerts in 2022, and I think David's right, and Rev and I were kind of nodded one another, to be relevant in 1976 and relevant 2022, ain't but a handful of those. I mean, there, there ain't many That's of true. those um, that can say that, but, but once again, um, and someone sent me an email or a text over the weekend, well, the stones did something similar to this at a tour they had, and then maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but I've never heard Keith Richards lecture about capitalism. I've never heard him write songs about fat cat bankers and, you know, the, the, the plot of the working. I think they're there. When you agree that that's going to be your persona and that's going to be your stick, you, you got to accept that as part of who you are. And I think Garth Brooks has done that. I think Garth Brooks has professed to be um, kind of a singer and performer for the average American. And when Garth sold his first show out and and realized, I think, from what I read, the tickets were getting a little bit out of control, you know what he did? He asked if he could do a second show. I mean, once again, what what distorts supply and demand better than two nights of concerts? So, so Garth basically walked the walk and talked the talk. To me, Bruce is talking the talk and walking a completely different walk. He's not violating laws. He's not. He's not doing anything that he doesn't. He's not entitled to do. And, and I think Reb would say, "Yeah, I mean, if Bruce can make a hundred million on this concert, make a hundred yeah, million. It's capitalism. But be prepared for people to perceive you as the fraud that you apparently are. I mean, that that's the point I want to make. It's not that he doesn't have a right to do this. It is not the Ticketmaster doesn't have a right to. He doesn't owe us an explanation. I mean, but but as much as he has a right to do this." We, the people, the Springsteen fans, have a right to call him the biggest fraud to ever put on a rock and roll show. And I think he's rivaling the biggest fraud to ever put on a rock and roll show. Let's go to the phone. Bob and Florence. Hello, Bob. Hey, good morning, Dave. Uh, good morning, Ken. So so Friday, <clears throat> mail truck comes, and I, and I get the mail out of the box. And uh, uh, you never like to see uh, a letter from the South Carolina Department of Revenue in July. And, but I had one, and I opened it up, and it was a nasty gram, and uh, it was advising me that I'd failed to pay property tax on on business property associated with the rental house. I and as you recall, last year we all had anybody that owned a rental house in Florence had to become a business, and had to pay for a business license, and all associated fees and taxes. So uh, I said, well, I don't. I called them up and said, well, I don't. Uh, what's this tax for? And they said, that's for your office equipment, for your business. I said, well, it's, it's a rental house. 
<laughs> I don't have any office equipment. I mean, I collect I collect rent from a guy once a month. You know, what, one rental house does not a business make. But uh, uh, but the letter said that you got you can't claim zero. You're gonna have. She, the lady said you're gonna have to. Uh, even even if you had equipment and you depreciated it, you couldn't depreciate it but ninety percent. So you still had to pay taxes on ten percent. And I said, well, that's yeah, that's still ten percent of nothing. I said, you're basically asking me to falsify tax information uh, so you can have some revenue on this thing. She said, well, that's the law. So that's you know, I feel that lady you talked about that's got the beach house. Man, that that'll break your heart. Uh, well, Bob, what they've done—I mean, what they've done—they've they, endorsed and participated in shakedowns. I mean, let's let's call it, it what is. it is. It is a, it is an it's absolute shakedown of the private sector, and they do it over and over. And I don't know that they do it intentionally. I mean, I think when lawmakers make these laws, and and a bureaucrat comes in and explains, or some think tank comes in and explains, well, here's why we have to do this, or but it ends up always inevitably becoming a, a shakedown of the private sector. And and I think someone's got to stand up and speak loudly against those sorts of shakedowns. And I agree with you 100. percent we we got we can't keep taking it like that because if you sit down and, and be quiet and take it, they just that's next time they'll stretch it some more. Bingo! Thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. Glad to hear him doing a little better. Sounds better than he did last week. Had um had a touch of COVID, from what we understand. Um, we're hearing from Bob who has COVID. We're not hearing a word from our president hmm. who has COVID. They say he's improving. Uh, he's hard at work. But they can't keep up with him. I saw the doctor yesterday on both shows said it's just amazing to me. I mean, I can't keep up with him. Can't sit him down long enough. Who believes that nonsense? I mean, I almost said something that I have no business saying over the air, but that's the only way. Who believes that chicken? I mean, really? I mean, who believes that? I mean, there are degrees of feces. And to me, in a country boy, chicken feces is about the most. I mean, if somebody says that, they really mean it. I mean, if, if they say, hey, man, that's chicken uh, then they really, really, I mean, that, that is as high an insult they can pay you as, as a country boy. And, and I just don't know who's buying that bill of goods. I mean, if anybody out there with half a brain believes that Joe Biden is hard at work, even while struggling through COVID, then, you know, we're done. We don't have half the chance. I thought we, we might have to save or redeem ourselves. There, there was a government doctor. I don't think it's his personal physician, but there's been a government doctor that has been at the podium answering some questions. And he said over the weekend, oh, the president even cleaned his plate. He showed it to me. <laughs> what? Yeah. D- well, is there, we what? had the, um, did the black lesbian let him say that? <laughs> yeah, she was. Because you know there. we got a black lesbian press secretary. Oh, I, know. I don't know if she knows her butt from third base, but she's a black lesbian. And as long as we have a black she, lesbian, she then America is on the move. Right? <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Here's Lee in Florence. Good morning, Lee. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, guys. How are we doing this morning? Hey, Lee. How are you? He's uh, talking about Bruce Springsteen. You know, in the church, we talk about people who talk one way and walk another way. We call those people hypocrites. So maybe you, that's the word you was looking for for Bruce. He does practices, preaches one thing, practices something different. So that's that's what we would call. Uh, I got a, a question for you, Ken. What do you think of the chances of there being two impeachments in twenty three? Thank you, Lee. Appreciate it. I would imagine uh, it depends on the speakership. I mean, if McCarthy becomes speaker, ah, fifty fifty. If Jim Jordan or somebody more committed to America First becomes speaker, I think there will be an all out attempt to basically return the favor. And I'm in that camp. 
I mean, you know, I, I'm not I'm not for the go along and get along. Um, screw civility and politeness and you know the the reverent process of which we and I think uh, there's govern ourselves. Many things that uh, you could really raise an impeachment, you know, raise impeachment for. Sure. Well, if there and is, the make it up. Border, I mean, if, there, if there's not, just and, make it up. I mean, rush collusion. I mean, just made up. I mean, just just make it up. I mean, I'm serious. You, I mean, an eye for an eye. I mean, there comes a point in time, guys. If the left believes they can get away with these sorts of things and the right won't return the favor. And that's really where we are. I mean, the, the crux of this entire re-imagining, uh, re-what about it's called? Yeah, last week, realignment. A part of the realignment, the what what has been previously misaligned is trying to be realigned is the fact that nobody stood up against the radical left, and we sent Republicans to Washington to do what? To vote our interest and to stand up to the radical left. Um, to not compromise on constitutionality of issue or, um, you know, taxes and the growth of government. I mean, that's what Republicans said they were going to do to Washington, stand in opposition to. They never did that. They will never do that unless we completely um, remove the establishment tendencies from the Republican Party and become a party led by America first. So, you know, the media is not going to stand against radical left. Academia certainly is not. The bureaucracies aren't. Uh, the Republicans are the only show in town if we are going to challenge these very radical views held by the American political left. But the former establishment Republicans don't count on that. Take a break. Back in a minute with Pepsi of Florence takes Mondays to make Friday's trivia. Pepsi of Florence takes Mondays to make Friday's trivia. Are you ready? We've talked a little bit about this this morning. Who said render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Who said that? 843-661-0937 is our number. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Who said that? 843-661-0937. want to thank Pepsi of Florence. Do we have a call? We okay, do. let's go there. Hi, you're on. You know the answer? Yes, I think so. Wasn't it Jesus Christ? You're right. That that um that long-haired, rabble-rousing zealot who professed to be God as well. Who is this and where are you calling from? This is Lee. I'm from Mechanicsville. Okay, Lee, thanks a lot. Appreciate you calling in. Yeah, Jesus in the book of Mark. I think Matthew as well. He says something similar to um to that. It was, again, a New International Version, New Living Translation, uh, the James, the King James Version. But, yeah, Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God. I just think government's playing God. I mean, I think they've stopped being Caesar, and they're playing God, and we're allowing them to play God, and that's dangerous, and we got to stop that. we got to really and truly, I mean, Caesar had limited control. God does not, and I think we've got to limit the control and authority our government has over the actions of man. Um, yeah, there, there's a God in heaven. Government ain't it. Thanks to Pepsi of Florence. Uh, our well winner said. wins a six-pack of Pepsi product. A couple of takes Mondays to make Fridays. T-shirt did the best we could do. We'll try harder tomorrow.